Hello, my fellow Westorians. Happy Sunday. Welcome back to another edition of Valar Reredis for the World of Ice and Fire. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We're dipping into a new era today. It is the era known as the Age of Heroes. And it's a long era. It's full of cool stuff, full of names and figures and characters and parallels. It's really bringing the business, as they say. And because of that, it's probably going to take us two, maybe three episodes to cover. There's so many rabbit holes, so many fun characters. So we'll see how it goes. And when there's that many rabbit holes, well, the chances increase that we stumble into some particularly deep ones. And already preparing this week's episode, we found ourselves in some rabbit holes of that variety, some pretty cool real world stuff, some influences. Well, maybe not real world. Real world is real world beliefs, we'll say. <laughs> Depends <laughs> on whether you actually believe that Zeus was real or is real. Yeah, we found out this week that Zeus is real. Yeah. So it is actually a pretty groundbreaking episode. <laughs> Given that this is such a monumental episode, a thunderbolt of an episode, what special beverage are you drinking to celebrate our Lord and Savior I've, Zeus. <laughs> I've been pretty consistently, I realized for a while that I've been using the naked drinks part of the mix forever because it's got the most pro- protein and, and nutrients and stuff. And I've, I'm sticking with Bang. I, I have right. the green, the protein green naked drink, the mango peach Bang. But I've also gone back to my roots Good old Mountain Dew in here. Oh, I was going to ask if you had switched from Mountain Dew to Bang, but no. Sean always puts MD after his name. People are like, you're a doctor? We're like, no, it stands for Mountain Dew. (laughs) 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 Shout out to Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Allie. She's got a great post uh, that I just read this morning on Knighthood. In the King's Guard versus the Night's Watch, and how those values apply in a very specific circumstance. And there's some parallels that go between the two. Good stuff. This episode is sponsored by manscapes.com. Get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code Westeros. And thanks to our patrons, we are in the process of some reworking of our Patreon. I said we'd have some of these changes done by the beginning of 2022. I have only done some of them. (laughs) So they're ongoing. But the biggest thing will be some older episodes are going to move off of the main feeds, getting a bit cluttered. We have so many episodes. We're moving away a lot of the TV episodes. People don't care about those nearly as much. So we're tightening things up, moving things around. We'll keep you abreast of all those changes. But I wanted you to be aware of them as they're taking place as well. Yeah, I think one thing to make people aware of, for example, if you're watching on YouTube, if all of the TV episodes have disappeared for you, you can go to our channel and it's in a playlist. Yeah. You can still view them in a playlist for each season. So you can still find them, but they're unlisted. That's right. A little harder to find, but if you know where to look, they're there. They're not gone. 
And as far as, I, oh, go ahead, I Sean. really recommend the TV episodes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean opinion has here. invested in opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we have a question that we've been working out, and we're going to continue this throughout all these Age of Heroes episodes. Send us your thoughts on what you think the current characters will look like, meaning what, how they'll be remembered in the future, whether you want to imagine it a generation later, a hundred years later, I encourage you to send your guesses on that. It's fun to imagine how the characters will be viewed and we'll be bouncing in and out of that topic throughout because it's going to pop up in a lot of places. So definitely, if you're watching live, send us comments or you can send them to us in one of the other places where we are located, like Facebook or Discord or Twitter or WestrosHistory at gmail.com. Let's start with a quote about our topic today. The Age of Heroes lasted for thousands of years, in which kingdoms rose and fell, noble houses were founded and withered away, and great deeds were accomplished. Yet, what we truly know of these ancient days is hardly more than what we know of the Dawn Age. The tales we have now are the work of septons and maesters writing thousands of years after the fact. Yet, unlike the children of the forest and the giants, the first men of this sage of heroes left behind some ruins and ancient castles that can corroborate parts of the legends, and there are stone monuments in the barrow fields and elsewhere marked with their runes. It is through these remnants that we can begin to ferret out the truth behind these tales. Yeah, and like we have with some of the other sections that we've covered so far, this reread isn't progressing entirely linearly, and that's because some of these sections jump back in time. Like you have a section on the Dawn Age, then it goes to the Age of Heroes. And then when you get to the section on each individual region, well, it goes back to the Dawn Age and then back to the Age of Heroes again. So sometimes we pull from those sections ahead if there's a point we want to make or gathering a particular information on a specific subtopic. I can't remember if it was on our episode with Elio or if it's something I read somewhere else, but I remember that he said that was one of the biggest challenges for them was how to organize all yeah. the information. Basically, it's chronologically, but also it's geographically. Boom, within the geographic sections, it's chronological. So yeah, it's easy when you get to one overall chronological moment to go to the geographic areas and see it there specifically as well. So. Yeah, that's, that, I'm, I guess that's a good thing to bring up there, Sean, because I can sort of feel at least a fraction of their pain having to try to organize mm -hmm. it for us. And for them, it must have been way harder. <laughs> So with the Age of Heroes, we have names and deeds. As this quote tells us, it says they hardly know more than what they know of the Dawn Age, but they write a lot more about it. <laughs> so maybe that's true, but they sure have a lot more to say about the Age of Heroes. Certainly a lot more is gleaned about it, or at least guessed. There's a lot more guesses on it, we'll say that, because it's certainly not 100% solid information, like it says here. But there's also the landmarks, the ruins, the architecture, things like that, and, and ruins indeed, and along with the oral histories and songs. So it is a lot clearer, even though it is hardly clear. But there's so much of it, just so much of it. There's so many founding figures. I considered making a, a master list and reading them all. And maybe I will, but not today. <laughs> and that, that's what a lot of those founding figures are. They're just a name and their title sort of describes what they were about. For example, Pate the Plowman. Pate the Plowman was is the founding figure. He was a blacksmith, right? Yeah, exactly. A blacksmith <laughs> and a drink and a named Plowman was yeah. George the Blacksmith. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. Yes, <laughs> that's that's literally all we know about him. He founded House uh, Moreland, I think it was, an uh, obscure house, and 
That's his name. He's Pate the Plum. And that's, those are the two things we know about him. <laughs> so we could make some guesses like that he's a blacksmith <laughs> and that his name was George, which... Some guesses are better than others. Yeah, exactly. So, so many houses have that figure. And so many of those houses represent that figure as part of their sigil or just name them. Uh, basically, the Age of Heroes lasts through the long night until the coming of the Andals. Arguably, and when we get to the coming of the Andals, we can talk about where some of these timeline discrepancies are. But it ended at least 2,000 years ago. Mo- more commonly accepted that it ended more like 4,000 years ago. And, it la- and as far as how long it lasted, at least 3,000 years, as many as 6,000, maybe even more. But we're talking a pretty wide range the kind of thing that if we imagine Westeros in the far, far flung future, they would probably be able to narrow that down using, you know, the kind of things that archaeologists of our time are able to use to narrow things down. Let's have another quote. What is commonly accepted is that the Age of Heroes began with the pact and extended through the thousands of years in which the first men and the children lived in peace with one another. With so much land ceded to them, the first men at last had room to increase. From the land of always winter to the shores of the summer sea, the first men ruled from their ring forts. Petty kings and powerful lords proliferated, but in time, some few proved to be stronger than the rest, forging the seeds of the kingdoms that are the ancestors of the seven kingdoms we know today. The names of the kings of those earliest of realms are caught up in legend, and the tales that claim their individual rules lasted hundreds of years, are to be understood as errors and fantasies introduced by others in later days. Well, yes, I like that quote. It kind of gives you a sense of the pack also enabled not just like the strong, adventurous, tough-minded settlers to carve out a living in places that the children still considered theirs. But after the pact, with this deal, assuming this information proliferated throughout enough places, humanity could say, hey, we can go to these places that were off limits before and start to and live there without worrying that someone's going to enter our dog's brain and have it attack our children or something like that, right? Which is, as we discussed before, we don't need to rehash that. It's, it's pretty darn terrifying. Knowing that is apparently not a problem anymore, you can see how that would kick off like a wave of new settling, right? Yeah, for sure. Sometimes people have children when they shouldn't, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you might be more likely to have more children, especially within a community when you know there's more forest to be chopped down as firewood and build new houses or whatever. It's, yeah, you can afford it. Yeah. threat or being ambushed while you're out, you know, foraging, etc. That's a good point. We should also point out as a reminder, there's no Roinar, only first men. And with that caveat, of course, mixed backgrounds, whatever first men used to mean, it mer- morphed into sort of one culture divided amongst the different regions of Westeros. Of course, as we talked about last time, the lack of war and maybe even the mingling of powers of the children and however that happened is going to start to happen and proliferate even more. Uh, One thing I did was look through the books for mentions of the Age of Heroes like we did with some of these other topics. Like when was the Pact first mentioned? When was the Isle of Faces mentioned? Like those things, the Age of Heroes isn't some new addition to the text. George had that idea pretty early on. There is, for example, a mention in Bran 1, A Game of Thrones, which is the first chapter apart from the prologue. And here it is. 
Rand's father sat solemnly on his horse, long brown hair stirring in the wind. His closely trimmed beard was shot with white, making him look older than his 35 years. He had a grim cast to his eyes this day, and he seemed not at all the man who would sit before the fire in the evening and talk softly of the age of heroes and the children of the forest. He had taken off father's face, Brand thought, and donned the face of Lord Stark of Winterfell. Clearly, Ned Stark is a faceless man. I, mean, oh, I was thinking, right there, taking his face off. I was know. thinking it was Sean Pink. <laughs> Sean Pink. <laughs> beard was white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look older than my 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, your memory may not be working so well, though, Sean. <laughs> you may have lost about 10 years in, the, in there somewhere. <laughs> so that's the first time it's mentioned, like I said. And it's seven times total mentioned in a Game of Thrones, and then it's kind of intermittent after. Like a lot of these things, it's introduced, and then as George expanded the story, he spaced it out a bit more, I suppose. Or maybe once it was established, it's only something that you need to be reminded of every once in a while. I have said before that I think this will be viewed as something like the Second Age of Heroes. And... In when things are all said and done or, or later. And let's talk about that briefly. I mean, you get things like supernatural powers. Those have always been around, right? Even in the so-called low magic era, you had people like Bloodraven existing who clearly had some magic. But definitely there's more now than there was then. I mean, there's things like miracles. Danny having <laughs> dragons. There's people coming back to life, right? I mean, ancient evil returning. Some things might be less well known, but Melisandre birthed a demon shadow baby or whatever. That's true. Yeah. That may not be new to people in Essos, but in Westeros, that's like, what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, and the stories people would tell about that, the things that singers would write about such a thing. Yeah. We also have like little details. In the Golden Company, there's a guy who claims to be from House Mud, which is basically impossible. House Mud's been extinct for like thousands of years. So, or has <laughs> or it? Or has it? So, it's kind of like a way for things to come back, even in this case, it's not literal. It's not like the others have awoken again. Oh, House Mud has re reawoken to <laughs> some random dude in the Golden Company. No, but it still has that flavor to it. Let's talk about some of the characters and who they reflect, sometimes more than one. Like Euron has a lot of the Grey King, but also Korad the Cruel. Korad the Cruel was a guy who captured Old Town and people basically ruled the West Coast. Not ruled, but kind of controlled it, dominated it. You know, they all... Was he from the Iron Islands? Yeah, he sure was. Yeah. And the Grey King supposedly defeated a sea dragon. Well, Euron's got a horn and he might do some dragon defeating or riding or something, you know, something with, to do with the dragon, right? Bran, we've talked about Bran the rebuilder, Bran the builder, that's pretty straightforward. Comparing him to the last hero also works pretty well. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship, but it works quite well. Robert and Garth Greenham, we talked about that. Not to mention other historical figures pairing with historical figures like Robert pairs with Aegon the Unworthy. So you could say the Aegon the Unworthy pairs with Garth Greenhand. A lot of these aren't, well, like I said, they're not always one-to-one. -one. Rogar the Huntsman is a king of the Dreadfort from long ago who has Ramsay Bolton vibes. We've got Serwin of the Mirror Shield. And we've got modern examples of things that are metaphors for a dragon's reflection like Eric and Arik. The Kingsguard Knights, who were twins, and one was sent to kill a dragon. <laughs> well, a dragon queen. Uh, or the attempts to kill Sunfire. Uh, Knight's King has Stannis vibes and John vibes. Melisandre has Knight's Queen vibes. 
Tyrion, his story is still has a lot to come, but he's already got some land the clever vibes and he may have even more when it's all said and done. Theon and Torgon the Latecomer. <laughs> Danny and John with Azora High, and others have Azora High vibes too. This list could be a lot longer, but you know, we gotta stop it at some point. But we also have characters that are connected to the Age of Heroes or stories from the Age of Heroes without necessarily being a parallel to that character themselves. Like Sansa's story has Florian and John Keel as a part of it. She's not really that much like John Keel, though. Well, in some ways, but she's less more, it's more about a story that people use to manipulate her <laughs> and something that she's attached to that she kind of grows out of, I guess you could say. That's a whole nother topic in and of itself, right? Just by itself, that could be a huge rabbit hole. Lots of ink has been spilled on Sansa and Florian and John Keel. Bran and Simeon Star Eyes, right? He's not going to be Simeon Star Eyes, but, you know, a blue-eyed, blind character, you know, maybe that's a, a thing for him taking over Hodor and fighting through him. Something like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, uh, there's so many possibilities. It, among the topics we have to play with, this one perhaps involves the best combination of required imagination and things to actually sink your teeth into. Like, with the Dawn Age, it's we have a lot more imagination to play and a lot less that we can, you know, be sure about. Here, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but we've at least got names and deeds, right? Even if they're not real, they're still inspiring real things. As, like I said at the beginning, Zeus didn't have to be real to have inspired people to worship him and do all sorts of things in Zeus's name, right? It doesn't have to be real for people to behave as if it's real. That's what matters um, when you really get down yeah. to it, right? We're probably going to come back to these themes a few times, yeah. but I, I wanted to throw out here that if you go far enough ahead, like we just talked about how the Age of Heroes and the coming of the Andals, those are like time periods that span thousands of years. Yeah. So right now, when we're looking at Westeros history or these current characters, it's only, we're looking at like 20 years and maybe we back up to 100 years and we include Dunk. But even if you back up three or 400 years and, and we get the Targaryens coming across and the scale of 3,000 years, that's a small little blip. Yeah. And could easily just be all blurred together, right? Yes. The whole Age of Heroes could start with the Targaryens coming across, and some of those characters might get bled together, just like mm. some of these other characters are potentially, you know, multiple different brands. Or, so many Aegons. Yeah. <laughs> could, could just become one amalgamated character over time. Same thing, like Tyrion and Tywin combined could be land the clever-ish, mm. you know, like their yeah. deeds might get meshed together over time, or in that case, since... Tyrion kills Tywin, maybe not. But anyway, you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. and it's and what's what's interesting about that too is that even though a lot of these things are written down, whereas they weren't in the original Age of Heroes, that doesn't make you wrong. It still doesn't really conflict with what you're saying. How many things currently in the modern world do people believe that are just completely not true? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So people still, even though the information is right there to be looked up, <laughs> you know, like this or is. It's it's true enough for the point to be made. Yeah, yeah. Right? True enough for the, the big picture history or whatever. Again, this is something else I plan on bringing up later on, but I'll, I, I think it could fit really well right here. Who's the first president? George Washington, right? Yeah. Not really. It's kind of a technicality. That's, he was the first yeah, right. there, president we elected. Yeah, there was a Continental Congress. 1788 yeah. or whatever, right? But there was still a president. The colonies were still united and fighting together and had a president. Washington was like the 10th or 12th or something. You know, the, John Hancock was president. 
of the United States before George Washington. But we give credit to the first one that we elected because that's the really important thing, right? Yes. And all those others serve like less than a year each and he served eight years. So right now it seems like it's such a big, clear distinction between Robert and Joffrey and Tom and whatever, right? But if you flash forward a thousand years, it might just be completely ignored. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, let's for, just say yeah. Stannis ends up becoming king. It'll The history will just go from Robert to Stannis to whoever after that. And it'll just skip over Tom and Joffrey. You know? Yeah, they might indeed, and they might entirely do that. Yeah, because they were king yeah. for such and a short time. Some period. historian will be like, well, technically, yeah. Joffrey. And <laughs> someone will be like, well, he wasn't really a Baratheon. And, and there will be some maybe some intellectual discussion. But the people of the world will just remember Robert than his brother Stannis, you know. And there's a great example from the text about that. Oberyn Martell's like, ah, Viserys II, he was barely king, you know, he didn't even rule a year or whatever. And Tyrion's like, he ruled more than a year and he did this and this, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so like yeah. Oberyn is highly educated <laughs> and he's he went to the Citadel, <laughs> you know, like he had yeah, six yeah. links <laughs> on his chains. And like, you can yeah. still brush off this footnote in history yeah. for the big picture, Absolutely. you know. I think I don't remember what point he was trying to make with that, but I think I don't think he was wrong with his basic point. He was just wrong with that detail. It didn't undermine what he was his greater (laughs) argument or whatever. Here's a great take from Nina. Westeros is obviously a magical place where extraordinary things can and do happen. But that's not to say every story of the age of heroes happened literally as legends recounts. Rather, these stories may have evolved out of ordinary individuals or groups that experienced extraordinary events instead of being literary, literally about gods or semi-divine figures. In the same way, while some of the major figures of A Song of Ice and Fire aren't completely ordinary, the Stark kids are all wargs, Bran's a greenseer, Danny hatch dragons, yeah. They're also real people, real thoughts, real decisions, real feelings. They're not gods. Even if they're maybe seen that way as godlike sometime later, they still have motivations and individual beliefs and things like that. That will probably be swallowed up by history. And that's going to be true for just about all of them, right? And we love that too, as people. Like we love to take on these stories from too far back to know the details of and add in details to think about what that person's life would have been, what their emotions or motivations or childhood or whatever would have been. We do that with pretty modern stuff even. (laughs) doesn't even have to be like ancient legend, you know? True that. Going back to your example about George Washington and the the true first president, that's also probably an example of a lot of these like founding figures for these houses. Like Brandon the Builder is cited as the founder of House Stark. But for all we know, there was some other dude that was, you know, his dad or his uncle that got there first, but staked out the land, but wasn't very good at construction. And Brandon the Builder is like, wow, this guy did so much that everybody gives him credit for it. But he, he's only the guy that built the castle, which is still a lot. But technically, it was his brother or his father that carved Set out Set up land. alliances so that the land would be safe, built the foundation, yeah. but died before it was first, scouted out the quarries where the stone would come yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Probably the generations of effort that culminated with one person who gets the credit either because they finished it or maybe because they wrote the histories of it or because they were more charismatic or whatever else. I really appreciate that George seems to grasp that concept very well and, and to write about it in a way that's, that seems, feels authentic because he's surely aware of that. He knows that history doesn't tell the full story. He knows that people get... Are you talking about Martin or George Washington? <laughs> <laughs> George R.R. Washington. Because interesting, it, it is interesting to note that George Washington was kind of aware if you want to go back to details of their lives, like he showed up to every meeting in Continental Congress in full military regalia. He was campaigning. He wanted <laughs> yeah. to make sure everyone knew that he was a military commander. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Use that hero status. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sure did. It sure did. 
In addition to these characters that we have parallels for, that we listed a bunch of, you know, examples of, there's some pretty good examples that maybe don't have parallels that are stand a very good chance of looking interesting on the pages of history much later. For example, Victorian, his firearm. Like, maybe he'll just fall in the sea tomorrow and no one will remember him. But <laughs> that's the kind of thing I would write about if I was a historian. <laughs> I'd be like, look at this guy. <laughs> John is resurrected conspicuously in front of a lot of people, quite possibly. Barrack's been resurrected a bunch of times, but that's not super well-known. There's not a lot of witnesses to that. People don't believe that. But the tales are being told, right? People are like, this guy can't be killed. He's been resurrected stabbed seven times or hanged once and bludgeoned another time. So that's, people are going to remember that. <laughs> Whether, even without the fact that he really has been resurrected, people would tell these stories. What about what about even, Gregor Clegane? Like, how the heck is he going to be remembered? I mean, part of that is difficult because we don't know all the extent of what he's going to do, but an eight-foot-tall undead monster? That seems like that would be memorable, right? <laughs> even skeptical characters like Tyrion, eventually they're like... I don't know. Maybe there are zombies up north. Like maybe they're yeah. They, they don't believe it strongly enough to go to to risk their reputation yet. But they at least have are starting to consider the potential of some of these things that they would normally write off. At some point, when all these different stories are coming up from everyone, yeah, and everywhere, and Eandel witnesses one of them to be true, they've got to start to consider maybe some of the others are also true. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Like one leads to another, and the credibility of the person telling the story yeah. goes way up. If you dismiss them over something that sounds outlandish and then they're proven right, you're like, oh, wow, we got to... Are those other outlandish claims he made also true? Which then you get into some serious denial about, oh, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to believe that. You know, I don't, can't believe all this is real. Apart from Gregor, what about Sandor? Another example, we don't know exactly what he's going to do. But just think about how tales are told of, of him that aren't true because of his helm. Right, his helm's out there mm -hmm. doing all sorts of work that he that he's not responsible for, but the stories are still coming back on him. So we have not only the unknown of what he's going to do, assuming he leaves the Quiet Isle, but the stories that are told about him might be dramatically different because of the atrocities of people like Rorg, who is wearing that helm. Now, that's the kind of thing that might just get forgotten because you know atrocities, someone you know destroying a village isn't really that abnormal in the historical sense, but. If he does something else to put him in the history books, then these other deeds maybe make their way into there as well. And some of them just don't belong to him. So you can kind of see Or even if Gregor does, like Gregor yeah. doing something more notable makes his brother more... And especially the way stories expand, like Sandor easily could go down. History is, you know, something more grand than he is. And also maybe something the opposite of what he is. He might be a, a brave fire warrior and mm. rather than someone who was scared of fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you can yeah, easily see how the story might be distorted over time. <laughs> that, be... That's a good one. I like that <laughs> idea. This guy who bravely faced fire. He was pushed into the fire as a boy and came out uh, one with the flames. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, he was highly traumatized and terrified yeah. of fire, but you go, you do you, history. <laughs> but especially if somehow Melissa Sandra gets intertwined with him or Gregor. You know, you could easily <laughs> yeah. see a thousand years in the future how his story could become something very different than what we know it is. If, it's, if he's brave facing the fire one conspicuous time and these other times were just only a few people saw it, then yeah, the one famous time is what people are going yeah. to remember. If we take the show's version, which I don't, but if we were to use that as an example of his end, that's worthy of a several songs, right? That's, that's <laughs> fantastic. First, brother versus brother is already pretty compelling, yeah. right? But 
dueling yeah, make one of them a zombie <laughs> yeah, and make it in the, the midst of a burning castle yeah. and yeah pretty incredible now the stories that are told about rob stark not even counting the really crazy ones that davos hears at the merman's court but the ones that are just being spread before that are already about him being a warg and all which is true but you know and about, <laughs> <laughs> but about these other things that are exaggerated that are associated with him being a warg so you got the the truth that's exaggerated some people say he's the son of Ned Stark. <laughs> <laughs> are they going to remember John? Like people, is history going to remember Jon Snow as, as Ned's son? Or are they, is, is it going to be known yeah. that he's not? Is that whole lie going to be exposed or that secret going to be exposed or not? Because it's super hard to prove <laughs> that, it's some, that it wasn't Ned's. How are they going to DNA test? That's always been an issue for the reveal of John's parentage is will other people believe it? How is this going to be proved? It, it can be proved to the reader, but to the characters in world, you know, how are they going to ever come to believe that? Or will it even be necessary? What about this early on in the story when Stannis sends out the letter to say Robert's kids aren't his? Are people going to believe that later? Or are people going to believe that the, are, is it going to be accepted that those are Lannister's that those are Jamie and Cersei's kids only? Is that going to come out and then be remembered that way? I would think so if it comes out because the scandalous stuff sells more headlines. But what about the one they responded with that Stannis, that Celise banged Patchface, and that's where, <laughs> you know, things like that. Like, will that make history books in 100 years? Because <laughs> that would be pretty funny if it did. <laughs> yeah, it can easily be that these become seeds of legends and expand and exaggerate the stories. It could also be they become forgotten footnotes, yeah. right? It, it might depend a lot on who sits here on the throne next. If it mm. is Stannis... It sends all these tales and rumors and how they're remembered in a very different direction than if it's Danny. You know? Yeah, that's true. And yeah, it's really who's in power, who's what's popular, what's like if it's Danny, cultural Robert are. might barely be remembered. <laughs> yeah, you know, if the Targaryens just come back into power, especially if Danny does something like try to purge history, or even if Danny doesn't, her children, some other. It could easily be that Robert is just a footnote rebellion. Mm. It's barely remembered a thousand years from now. You could have it. And no one knows or cares anything about Tommen or Stannis yeah. or anything. You know? Yeah, like briefly the Targaryens were off the throne from, and they will, and they'll highlight, if that's the scenario, they'll highlight the fact that Robert is their cousin, that he's a Targaryen two generations yep. past. Yeah. It was like, yeah, so just, yeah, so a cousin took the throne briefly and, but then the yeah. Targaryens got it back and that was that, you know, because they got... No the, one will care to remember anything about Balon or, you know, yeah. that, that just will become meaningless or forgotten or... Only scholars will know. Yeah. The history nerds will know, but the regular folk will be like, but then the dragons came back. <laughs> That'll be the the part that people really seize on. Yeah, and then a new long, then another, the long night happened. The wall came down. Yeah. You know, all these things like Robert. Yeah, who cares about Robert? <laughs> you know, I, I never thought about it from this angle. But how do you think George will want these characters to be remembered a thousand years from now? Uh, I wonder if he's like we've about seen that. George give us perspective of characters from a hundred years ago, right? Yeah, but. And, and I sort of from thousands of years ago, but I wonder what George would want these characters' legacies to be in this world. Hmm. Yeah. It's hard to know that, but it's a, it could take us down a path of new ways to evaluate where he might lead the plots, you know? This is something that we'll get to play with when House of the Dragon comes around and we'll get to talk about a little bit yes. with Dance of the Dragons, the, the book version, because in the book versions, it's all presented as having multiple sources. It's, it's a common thread running through it. It's more detailed than most sections of history. And 
yeah, you've got conflicting accounts from Eustace and Mushroom and a few other people about what happened. And that's going to be fun to deal with because here it's really just Eandel, you know, and he's not, he isn't going to argue with himself too much. He's a scholar, so he presents opposing arguments, but, you know, he's not going to go too far with a lot of those things. Clearly, doggone it. (laughs) Especially when it comes to magic, right? (laughs) Speaking of magic, how about this cool business? We've got uh, several quotes here that speak to George basically telling us that this is, if not a new age of heroes, it's something. It's a new era. It's a new something. Here's Theon speaking to Aaron. They say the Red Comet is a herald of a new age messenger from the gods. Nina says, you don't get much more explicit that this is a new age of wonder and terror than almost literally unfurling a unique banner across the sky that virtually every POV thinks is amazing, ominous, or both, or that, plus other things. (laughs) So, (laughs) for example, noted wise man Corin Halfhand has two similar quotes. One he says to John, and then one to Stone Snake. Let's have those, shall we, Sean? The cold winds are rising. Mormont feared as much. Benjamin Stark felt it as well. Dead men walk and the trees have eyes again. Why should we balk at wargs and giants? And then, tell Mormont what John saw and how. Tell him how the old powers are waking, that he faces giants and wargs and worse. Tell him that the trees have eyes again. Again. So it implies that a ranger... Uh, especially a ranger like Corrin, who's been ranging beyond the wall for 30 to 40 years. I mean, the guy's like in his 60s or late 50s and has been basically a ranger his whole life. The phrasing is again, the trees have eyes again, as in they had been dormant and now they're awake again. So he seems to have this awareness. And I'm not saying a supernatural awareness. He's observed it just using analog means, for lack of a better term, natural means. And that's the information he wants passed on. He thinks this is vital and you can see why. He doesn't fully know what it means. Obviously, he didn't live through this before. He just knows it's a big deal. And yeah, he's not wrong. (laughs) That's a really neat quote. I like that a lot. We've got Danny Five, A Clash of Kings, which is talking to Zaro. Was it not you who told me warlocks were no more than old soldiers vainly boasting of forgotten deeds and lost prowess? Zaro looked troubled. And so it was then, but now I am less certain. It is said that the glass candles are burning at the house of Urathon Nightwalker that have not burned in a hundred years. Ghost grass grows in the garden of Gahain. Phantom tortoises have been seen carrying messages between the windowless houses on Warlock's Way, and all the rats in the city are chewing off their tails. The wife of Mathos Malarowen, who once mocked a warlock's drab, moth-eaten robe, has gone mad and will wear no clothes at all. Even fresh-washed silks make her feel as though a thousand insects are crawling on her skin. And blind Sebastian, the eater of eyes, can see again, or so his slaves do swear. The man must wonder. Wonder indeed. Oh, an age of wonder. (laughs) Yeah, that's so cool. I love that quote. These are all just George being imaginative. These are not likely places that will matter to us. The warlocks matter. I love the alliteration of ghost grass grows in the garden of Gain. (laughs) You know, that's really good. But it's the same sentiment, right? And it's important to note this one because this is Karth. 
This is the farthest east anyone goes on page in the story. Now we've got characters that have gone farther east off page. There's several characters with M names who have been to Ashai. Marwin, Mary Mazdur, Melisandre. <laughs> but obviously they don't have POVs there or anything. So this is all happening around the same time as John being beyond the wall. So these things are happening basically simultaneously in basically the first two books, kind of these things are all awakening. And then beyond that is when more of the events start to actually happen. Like you start book three with the others attacking the fist, right? And directly affecting the story rather than being on the periphery. And of course, as a big introduction, again, a similar-ish quote, a Feast for Crows prologue. Dragons and darker things, said Leo. The gray sheep have closed their eyes, but the mastiff sees the truth. Old powers waken, shadows stir. An age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us. An age for gods and heroes. Oh, yeah. And perhaps the most ominous of the questions <laughs> so far, or quotes so far from the Forsaken, here's Euron himself. The bleeding star bespoke the end, he said to Aaron. These are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. A new god shall be born from the graves in charnel pits. Ooh. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> <laughs> dire wolves and cats. Yeah, dire wolves and yes. shadow cats. Dire yeah. wolves and lions living starts. together. <laughs> <laughs> the Euron wants to be that god. He's not. He uh, being an, a hero is not enough for him. He needs to be a god, especially in a, in a in a place that doesn't have a lot of named gods. He also has powers, artifacts, knowledge that are misunderstood even now and, and could be remembered as fantastical. I mean, the horn is magical. His armor is somewhat magical, but his ability to sail is, is remarked on by some of the other Ironborn as magical, even though we're pretty sure it's just advanced seamanship. It doesn't seem to be any magic to it. It's a good combination of things. It's the kind of thing that his, the history books might also get confused as to say, oh, he, they say he could command the winds. That's the kind of thing that a good historian would question. Like, are we sure he did that? But then if they have evidence that he really had a dragon horn, well, they, how are they going to dismiss other tales of magic? Which is the exact conundrum people like Euron and Melisandre play off to make, them seem more make themselves seem more powerful. How cool you is know, that? <laughs> we've talked a few times about how hundreds or thousands of years in the future, this moment might be looked back on. But here we see a collection of people looking back on things from just the past few years. Yeah, that's true. And we're kind of seeing it uh, perspective from different areas. Think how Karth, people of Karth might refer to the happenings of Westeros right now. They might not be completely aware of everything, but give it a few more years. And someone might say, especially if they wanted to be more eloquent or, or mysterious about it, they could say, Dogs and women and men rise, kings fall, you know, like if Catelyn's come back and the hound and, and yeah. maybe the mountain have come back and a mountain that know, crumbles, Beric you know, and John, yeah. you know, like all these people coming back from the dead and while the kings are dying and it, it could all be pitched as fantastic and mass hysteria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he summons a kraken, will people believe that later? How many eyewitnesses will, will there be to it? How many people will survive it if he does that? If he's presuming, assuming he does that, you know, it'll be to during a naval battle where he's 
wanting it to destroy his enemies. So if it's successful at all, that r- cuts down on the number of witnesses. And the remaining witnesses are like his followers, like they, they're which, very biased. Yeah, they yeah. don't have a lot of credibility. We readers, of course, see exactly what's happening as far as the basics of the truth of it and say, yep, that was a kraken. Yaron <laughs> also seems willing, if not likely, to do something very powerful and fantastic without concern for the repercussions. Like yeah. he might summon a Kraken and it just destroys all the navies, yeah. his own and, you know, he might not have control over this power that comes up. And so even if he or some people live to tell it, one, he might get to choose how the telling goes. Two, it might be easy for other people to ride it out. Like it may just, a, a storm came and just upturned all the ships. Mm, and, yeah. you know, some people claim they saw a Kraken, but you can see how <laughs> it could still be dismissed at least potentially, you know. Yeah, like the Ironborn could look back on him as the embodiment of the Storm God. Like he wrecked them. He was terrible. Like the, he, like the Storm God was controlling this guy, you know, because he clearly did so much damage to our people. Or they could look at him as a great heroic figure. I mean, Dalton Greyjoy, the Red Kraken, left the Ironborn in a sorry state, but they still worship him as a hero because of his demeanor, his victories. You know, they didn't look at the long-term impact of his policies and the the pushback that came from the people he had harmed. They didn't see that as part of the total picture. You know, it's like looking at the income, but not looking at the expenses. Look at all that yeah. income. It's like, <laughs> yeah, the expenses are more than the income. Yeah, but look at all the income. Like, what? <laughs> you gotta keep the money moving. <laughs> you gotta keep the money moving. Yeah, so... That's Euron, just keeps the Ironborn moving. and uh, The Kraken's moving. <laughs> yeah, before they realize how, <laughs> how screwed they are. And yeah, so, I mean, if Euron does all these things, like if he brings down the wall or rides a dragon or kills a dragon or both, or if he does even a fraction of the things he seems to be capable of and says he's going to do, you could see why he could be remembered as some sort of gray king figure, someone who seems larger than life. It's like, it's hard to say this guy was totally human <laughs> because he did so many fantastical things. But given an example like this, we can say, but he is human and thus extrapolate that the original gray king may have also been pretty human. Mm, he yeah. just had access to powers. They may not have been in him right? They may not have changed him into some being that could live several hundred years, although they might. <laughs> That's also Maybe not also. off the table. Yeah. yeah. So with that, it just opens up so many fun possibilities. And I really enjoy exploring uh, that. The imagination really flies. Yeah, I really do like that point that Nina made that you know, we can see that these characters we're following now are human. They have fears and regrets and hopes. And also they can turn into to animals and, and, you know, I don't know, conjure fire or return from the dead. All and so these fantastic stories from the past, we can both see how they might actually be true, but also see how they were just people, not necessarily gods. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's pretty cool. I like how, I like the way this, you can get to, we get to see it from a lot of angles. We get to see the far away from close up and the close up from far away and the now and the then and in different ways. And it may, we might even get to see the then close up if Mr. I can see into the past gives us, <laughs> gives us a look. Uh, I don't know if he'll look back that far, but hey, he has already looked back that far, right? He already looked back in that vision he saw when Winterfell was young and they were sacrificing someone on the stump there. That's pretty far back, you know? Like that's real you far know, back, I think. 
A couple of thoughts are just clicking on my mind. I'm sure I'm not the first person to have had them. Maybe not the same thing, but the ability for people to communicate through candles. Mm, the glass candle stuff, yeah. Those same people also seem to have visions of the future. Yeah. So could they also have visions of the past? You know, I think there's a lot of potential characters out there who could get a vision of the past. That's true, yeah. And I mean, not just Bran. It seems possible. I mean, yeah, Bran just seems like someone who could actually can have more control over it. Like, he could choose maybe yeah. where he goes. You're right, like some of these other he ones. He seems are, most likely yeah. and most able or whatever, but it, it's not limited to him, I don't think at all. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. I think there's it, he's not the only one. You're right. He's the, perhaps the most likely, but even that is, yeah. You know, you never know what Sam will find in the Citadel. <laughs> you know, yeah. some book. Yeah. could always have that happen. And, and certainly the show you know, gave us a little taste of Sam, like hunting around in there in those shelves. I don't know. I don't suspect it'll go the same way, but they may have gotten that idea from something George told them. I hope, I mean, I hope there's more library stuff. Come on, you know, (laughs) (laughs) who are we talking about here? Of course I want that. This is really random, but I just, when I was a kid, whenever there was a book in a movie, I was so enthralled by the idea because I felt like, well, <laughs> what's in that book? That could, that could, I want to know. I, I felt like it had to be a real book. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like just as like a young kid, that it can't be in there if it's not real, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> One thing we're going to also do, not just explore the, the gods and the heroes, although that is where we're starting. We're going to explore how this impacted culture, like how these heroes left their mark on traditions and beliefs and general behavior. A good example of that comes to us from the Sworn Sword, where we get a anecdote that gives us a sense of a little bit of how things were done back then that is not done now. The blood price? She laughed. He is an old man, I know, but I had not realized that he was so old as that. Does he think we are living in the age of heroes when a man's life was reckoned to be worth no more than a sack of silver? <laughs> I think we, I believe we talked about that at the time when we were talking about the Sworn Sword, that things like wear guild and, and real world cultures where you, a lot of times that is how it was resolved. You have a town elders or some sort of law person, depending on the individual culture or the location, and they... Yeah, they work out a price. Well, you killed this person, then you got to pay this much, you know? <laughs> I mean, we still do I, that. I made the point then. Yeah, yeah they still, it's right, it unlawful death. Yeah. So you, yeah, you still, still get sued for millions of dollars if you do something irresponsible to kill someone. Yeah. It's, you know, maybe more, maybe the dollar amount is more than it was then, and maybe mm-hmm. there's more appropriate. That's but, true, yeah. You may also yeah. have to use your civil but you, and But you can criminal. also take out life insurance yeah. and value your life at a very specific amount. Be the like, blood okay, price, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, y'all. You're totally right. That is the blood price. They don't call, we don't call it the blood price, but you're right. Like life insurance <laughs> is kind of the blood price of sorts. <laughs> yeah, and like a wrongful death. Yeah, you're totally right. Like you can sue someone for wrongful death and it's, you're right, that's the same kind of You get, get in front of a judge of some kind, some sort of law person and work out the cost. Yeah. Back then, maybe it was like limited to that. If a, a wealthy, noble person killed someone of lesser status, Maybe they would merely have to pay some silver and they would be done with it. In modern times, in some places at least, that's probably still true. Mm. But but now you get tried for murder and also can be sued for millions of dollars or whatever. Yes, that is true. That is true. The, the idea of our rights and stability when it comes to insurance, you know, stability of your posterity is is more carefully planned out nowadays than it was back then. But the concept isn't that separated. You're right. You got, yeah, you're, you're all totally right. I wonder if George was kind of having a little laugh 
when he wrote that, like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is maybe maybe that's another way of looking at how the Age of Heroes is still uh, is still around us. There's um, <laughs> this writing. I wish I could remember what it was called. Oh, it's uh, the NASA Ramble. Anyways, it's this anthropological writing that's like, oh, ha, look at how weird this culture is. They do all these strange things that we don't do. And they describe it in a very exoticized way. But yeah. it's just what we do in the U.S. culture. It's it's meant <laughs> yeah. to do that. It's a humorous, it's not a real culture. It's not a real tribe that they're analyzing in this work. They're describing things like how we brush our teeth or go to the dentist and stuff like that, describing it like, then <laughs> they go to people who will put them into pain, just, just like drill <laughs> into their mouth and put metals in there. You know. <laughs> awful what kind of culture would do that, that? So yeah. cool. and so but in my anthropology class there are people who don't get that it's a, a, a humorous thing and they're like you know well it isn't that it isn't that barbaric <laughs> seriously <Did> you... <laughs> it's like no it's, this a, is... joke. Yeah, it's a joke it's a joke Matt Reese writes, in a few hundred years, Marjorie the Golden Widow or the Kingsbane will be either the tragic girl who was forced to marry several men in a row or killed them when she couldn't control them. And then, or maybe both those <laughs> stories. Like you can see how both those stories, just like in the Dance of the Dragons where Mushroom would, will tell one of these stories and Septon Eustace will say the other. And they both survive because no one can disprove the other and they're both popular for their own reasons. So they both have supporters. <laughs> also, how old are those stories? 300 years old? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give it another thousand years, one or the other might, might true. get a stronger foothold. Very true. Good point. Yeah, it may be, both of them may be around for 100 years and then one of them dies off. And yeah, you're right. It's not uh, such a simple thing to say both will survive or neither for all the same time. Dornish James says, if John was remembered at all, it would be as a turncloak, an oathbreaker, and a murderer. John 10, A Storm of Swords is actually, that's actually a quote <laughs> from the books, not just a, what Dornish James thinks will happen. Because they say, this language is used a lot in John's POV chapters and it hints maybe at how he'll be remembered. Sean, I believe you mentioned something along these lines, how just bringing the wildlings south is, or the free folk south is, so yeah. many people think that is treasonous because it's, it's a big historic moment. Yeah. How it gets remembered later on, yet to be seen, maybe not even magical, but still uh, a, a big, easily uh, a moment to be lumped in with the Age of Heroes, the second coming of the Age of Heroes. Moving an entire population. That's a, yeah, it's a huge. The first man coming across isn't necessarily magical in any way, right. but it's still this landmark moment that's looked at how we evaluate history. Yeah. Someone like Bowen Marsh, Part of why they turn on John is this is just unthinkable. This thing he's doing. It's been this way for thousands of years. This the, the free folk are their enemy. Like, you can't just do this. It's yeah, it's it's outrageous from their perspective. It's gonna make it hard for people in the current timeline to look at it as a good thing. Especially people the farther south you go, they're like, what the hell is this guy doing? Consider what the show gave us for Randall Tarley's attitude towards free folk. You know, like that's a good example of something from the show that I think is accurate to a lot of book characters in the South. They just look at the wildlings as some other race, some other savage culture that should be looked down on. So yeah, this guy bringing them into the realm, like that's, for their perspective, that's uh, horrible, right? <laughs> on one hand, it could, maybe it's horrible or weird, but also they, the farther South you go, the less they care about it. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. that's a good point too. They yeah. like this wildling South, we don't care. You know, they got to get to the whole North and a neck and they're not going to get that. I mean, so... I can see them maybe not being worried about it. Here's another way it could turn John to a more heroic legacy is if the wildlings help fight off the others or sure. Euron or right if they do become 
strong, important allies in some bigger battle. Yeah. That will make John go down as more of a hero. That's true. And if they're just incorporated into Westerosi culture in general. Yeah. It's true, but I think they're more likely to just be incorporated into Northern culture and the South did not know or care as much. Yeah. If the wall is gone, then it'll be harder to see them separate. Yeah. Yeah. They may not want to be separate at that point, but you're right. But also there's a possibility they just aren't, you know, their contribution is, is denigrated. We're going to, we're going to heap the rewards on the people we were already friendly towards and just kind of leave the free folk as a footnote. There's plenty of examples of brave fighting units of minorities or groups like that were not given their proper acclaim. You know, the free folk might be such an example, unfortunately. Here's a funny anecdote. There's a movie called Age of Heroes. It was made in 2011. It is, quote, the true story of the formation of Ian Fleming's 30 Commando unit, a precursor for the elite forces in the UK. The top billed actor in this movie is Sean Bean. (laughs) (laughs) Now think about the date, 2011. That's when Game of Thrones, the TV show, came out. So this was probably what he did right before Game of Thrones or right after. I mean, he was only in one season. So, you know, so that's kind of funny, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Sean Bean popping up here. What are the odds that Sean Bean dies in this movie? I mean, it's a movie about top commandos. and You mean Scene Bean. Scene Bean, yes. Or Sean Bond. <laughs> Sean Bond. <laughs> yes. He likes to eat good food. <laughs> So when I was typing this comment in our document, I accidentally wrote, instead of Age of Heroes, <laughs> if you take a look at the keyboard, the letter O is right next to the letter P. So I accidentally wrote Age of Herpes, <laughs> which is a terrifying thought. Like, that is not a good time to be alive. You've heard the phrase, it's a great time to be alive. Well, not if you're living in the Age of Herpes. And just like the Westerosi Age of Heroes, the Age of Herpes lasts for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Where have we gone? Where have we gone today? (laughs) All right, let's do a reset. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Support for History of Westeros is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. G- grooming champions of the world below the way. That is that is a lofty title, but I, I can't really argue with it. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. off and free worldwide shipping with the code Westeros at manscaped.com. Ash and I are are fans of a show currently airing. I'm not going to say the name because this episode happened a couple weeks ago. This would actually be a little spoilery, but it's amazing timing because there's an incident where someone has blood on the front of their pants and at least a suspicion of foul play because this character has a a little history of being shady, but it turns out to be a manscaping attempt gone wrong, like really horribly wrong. They used a razor that they should not have used down there. It sounds like a Disney movie. It kind of does. <laughs> and for me, this was really awkward timing because they shipped us some product and it's, well, you could use this on yourself. And I'm like, I'm not going to recommend a razor without using it, right? That's kind of a shady thing to do, right? I should test this product out before I recommend it. 
but I had just seen that scene. <laughs> so I'm like real reluctant to be like, am I really going <laughs> to? So I came up with a little compromise. Me personally, I don't have a lot of body hair. I have my chest hair is like the equivalent of a teenager really trying hard to grow their first mustache. <laughs> so I went, so I'm like, okay, Manscaped, here's your chance. Because if you're advertising that your product is safe down there below the belt, if you're saying it's safe for close sack work, then you're basically saying it's safe anywhere else on the body. <laughs> I mean, that's the bar. That's the highest setting of the bar right there. So I shaved my chest with it and I was impressed. You know, the, the two most sensitive spots that don't need representation on breastplates, that was the real test. That's the real, the useless spot on a man's chest that still hurts <laughs> if you touch it wrong. It doesn't do anything except hurt occasionally. Come on, nipple, <laughs> what's your purpose? But really, if you can run a razor over that and not feel it, which I, I expected it to hurt a little bit, I didn't feel a thing. I it was really impressive. So that was pretty cool. So that's that was my experience with it. I can't say enough about how excited I am to have a something that works there <laughs> that isn't going <laughs> to hurt me. <laughs> Sean, what about you? Yeah, I was a little surprised when we got this package. Like, I, it was really from head to toe manscaping. <laughs> you know, they they bill it, and you know, I don't my you know the house words of house beard are trim, don't shave. For those who weren't aware, <laughs> I haven't used an actual razor in a long time. But sometimes I do use like a buzzer to get like around the underside of my neck or the back, you know, the back of my neck, the hair, you know. A lot of razors um, have died attempting to enter Sean's beard. They just go in and they vanish. <laughs> There's three broken ones in there somewhere. <laughs> but this one works. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, sometimes, and I've had a razor for like way over 10 years. Not a, a straight razor, but like a buzzer, you know. Yeah that I use for like trimming around. And I've, on one hand, I've always been happy with it, but on the other hand, I didn't really have anything to compare it to. This new one, I actually have it here, by the way. It's, I was really surprised because sometimes every now and then, especially when you can't see the back of your head or you're at a weird angle, it can nick your skin a little bit. But this one was so smooth. I kind of like pushed the limits and tested it. I was like, oh, I just can't. I just couldn't on purpose hurt myself with mm, it. So, yeah, that's good. Um, that's good. Hey, razors have just gotten better over time. I don't know how much did, to those of you out there who care about it. But. Did you notice that it had a headlight? It has a headlight like for... Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> really cool. It, it also, I think that's very cool. Serve, yeah. Yeah. I and wish also, my razor had a headlight, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even when it's charging, the little light that comes on is almost like a nightlight. That's yeah. convenient. And it has a USB port on the charger. It's like a very modern, nice thing. And even another thing I kind of appreciated the the like shaving bag that it comes with. I don't eat meat. I'm not a straight up vegetarian, but I don't like to do things to kill animals. I don't want to get preachy about it or anything. But this is not leather. I was happy to make oh. and all the product, the lotions and stuff it came with, they're all vegan. So there's lots of lots of things I can really say. Yes, it, it also comes with the package. We got like a package of a bunch of different products. It's got a nice pair of underwear in there too. Yeah, yeah. Sean, I have to say I was skeptical going into this. <laughs> I think the, of, the, of all the three of us, he was the most skeptical. And then he was like, oh, I really like this razor, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I even used something. It came with a nose hair trimmer. And well, you have a nose. I do have a nose, <laughs> and I've never had to trim my nose hair. You had but one after like, hair, like literally one. Yeah, one. And I, you're not <laughs> supposed to pluck your nose hair; it's bad. But it didn't want to use Aziz's nose hair trimmer. It was gross. I don't know. Yeah, but I used share. this one, and it was great. I don't have much other experience to tell you how it works compared to other nose hair trimmers. But if you're getting the package, I can tell you that this is useful. 
<laughs> I used it and I'll probably use it again. And, and I have to give them a, a shout out for their pun. It says the blade is ceramic, cutting edge technology. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so get 20% off and free shipping worldwide with the code Westeros at manscaped.com. Again, 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code Westeros. Unlock your confidence with the new lawnmower 4.0. Your balls will thank you. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, totes. With the scrotes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to the Greek age of heroes, sometimes called the Greek heroic age. Now, George takes his influences from a number of places, of course, invents quite a lot, and synthesizes and describes it all like no one else. But I've noticed that Greek myths are particularly present in this part of the lore. They're not very present in the Dawn Age lore, but they come roaring forth here in the Age of Heroes. And then there's we and other folks around the fandom have pointed out there's quite a lot of Greek and Homeric in the main series as well. So some of this is going to be a little familiar or at least fits in with a lot of that. But we're going farther back in time. In modern times, a lot we often hear the designation Stone Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age. It's not super different from how the ancients looked at it. And if we could sort of do that with Westeros, I guess we would say the Dawn Age, the coming of the First Men, the Age of Heroes, coming of the Andals, and then the Seven Kingdoms period. But you really could just say Stone Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age in Westeros too, right? Don't you think? You're leaving a lot out, but you're leaving a lot out in the real world when you talk about those things yes, too. It's yes. Like really, that's like, uh, you know, European-ish history. Like yeah. wh what was going on with the Stone, Bronze, and Iron Age in the Americas, for example? Like yeah. I didn't know or care anything about this steel or whatever. Well, I mean, maybe they would have, but, and it's not to say that they were even like a bad or wrong culture. They're just, just the phases of what's happening in history are so different in different parts of the world. It can't be comprehensive enough and it doesn't cover everything. But again, when you're in thousands of years worth of perspective, there's, it's hard to know everything about every moment of every culture. So you lump things together into big groups. Yeah. It's an easy parallel to make. So. Mm, good point. Yeah. And as well, we need to point out that this is a look. You're totally right to point out the like the centrism of of some of these placements, some of these categorizations, but also their worldwide designations. Whereas this is just Westeros. We're not talking the entire Planetos or Taros or right. Martin World, yeah. whatever we're going to call it. Which, if we were looking at it globally, we, we can't really. But if we were, it would look. It might look a little different. In Greek history, let's talk about the poet Hesiod. He framed the world as in five stages. And a bit later, the Roman poet Ovid reduced it to four, but they're similar. The five stages under Hesiod were the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Heroic Age, and the Iron Age. The Golden Age was the era of, the, of Kronos and the Titans where Zeus and his brethren overthrew them. The Silver Age was the first attempt to make, there were people in the golden age, but they were different. Silver age had people, but Zeus didn't end up liking them. He wiped them all out basically. <laughs> and then the bronze age people came along. And at the end of the bronze age, you have the heroic age, which is where the Trojan war and the Argonauts and Heracles, all that business happened. So that's the stuff that we all know pretty well that George would have known very well growing up and is very popular. It's one of the most popular myth cycles in the world, partly because it's so old. And partly because other ones derive from it, like a lot of Norse mythology has very straight parallels in Greek mythology. And not all of it, obviously, but that's a big deal. And then the Iron Age, of course, would be where Hesiod found himself in the year roughly 700 BC. And 
he didn't like it. <laughs> he thought that the other eras were better. <laughs> He's like, man, it sure was better before. But that's partly... The old days are always the good old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Partly because they're imagining and they're just inventing these details. Like, it really was the golden age when gods were walking around. If you really believed that, well, I guess you could see why. It's like, yeah, sure isn't like that now. And you might think that's lesser, you know? Like, it was better when the gods were walking among us. But... Now, you can see why Ovid changed that to four ages. Because like you're saying, Sean, you leave a lot out when you generalize like that. But the heroic age is only like six generations long or 700 years long, depending on like, it's framed different ways. But it's much shorter than an era of of technology. The, The Bronze Age is recognized in real history as 20, what did we say? 2,200 years long or something like that. So it's nothing compared to just a few generations or even a few hundred years. Hesiod may have been a contemporary of Homer. Uh, so, and Ovid lived during the time of Augustus. So Ovid would have been a few hundred years later. And it's really interesting to compare the two because the Romans didn't care about relationship to gods. They didn't have kings. And that's where you get into the, the importance of establishing these things at the beginning of a founding of a house. Because it's the style of government that you're trying to uphold over the long term is framed in these things. A lot of ancient Greek rulers ruled because they could claim descent from Greek gods, like descent from Zeus or descent from Achilles. Well, Achilles is descended from Zeus, so that's kind of the same thing. Descent from Heracles. These things were huge in enforcing claims in the ancient Greek world and to a lesser extent or to a different extent in different cultures. Take the the pharaohs. The pharaohs are gods, right? Modern monarchs have divine right, meaning God has ordained them as the king. They're not related to the God or they're not related to each other, but the God has chosen them. So those are the two ends of the extreme where the God, you are a God or God has chosen you. And in between that is where we're at with both the Greek age of heroes and with Westeros, which is claiming blood connection to gods and heroes. And that is pretty neat. Alexander the Great and his family, Philip, they claim descent from, (laughs) from gods. When Alexander's general Ptolemy conquered Egypt after Alexander's death. They rewrote Egyptian history to to claim that there was a god named Macedon that (laughs) existed alongside (laughs) Isis and Set and all these others. (laughs) Macedon being being the nation he came from. So it's like, yeah, see? (laughs) How silly, just making up gods like that. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's actually where I wanted to go with this as well, Sean, because we say... The Westeros doesn't have these distinct older gods for the most part, not by name, right? Other than the Andals, who we haven't gotten to yet. And even that's really just one god with multiple aspects. So most of these gods don't have the same mm, manifestation as a Zeus or uh, an Athena or what have you, because they're like these specific distinct figures that walk amongst mortals. But if you parse that out and like, wait, but again, there really wasn't a Zeus. This was just a story <laughs> that people believed at the time. So it's kind of the same thing in that sense, except it might not be because, well, Garth Greenhand. might be a Zeus. No, because oh, no, okay. Garth Greenhand may have really <laughs> had powers and because, uh, you see what I'm saying? So how do you respond? Well, I've been kind of going off for a minute here. What do you think about this introduction of Greek history mythology compared to Westerosi history mythology? Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, that there's lots of similarities, but also lots of distinctnesses. I think it's, it's interesting to me the nature of religion in general, and I, you know, I tend to be, I don't know, agnostic-ish, and I, but I don't like to judge people who are religious or believe in some supernatural 
power that's out there or whatever. But one thing that gave me a sort of an understanding was Carl Sagan pointed out that early, early human development, something that we would have seen like a, a tribe around a campfire in the distance, you would see another campfire. And that's another tribe out there. You might even know or interact with them. And it looks like just a little speck of light. Hmm. But also up in the sky, there are these specks of lights. Hmm. You have no concept of stars, right? That To them, that's just campfires. There's some powerful people that live in the sky. Like, think how universal it is hmm. for different religions to, have, to hmm. look to the heavens for the power to come from above. Lightning comes down. Rain comes down. Like, it, it just makes sense how similar in certain ways so many religions are to each other. I think because of that phenomenon. And there as a way to explain the world or as a way to explain what's happening around. Right. Yeah. And that's a lot of what most religions are doing. They're trying to explain things that they didn't have the scientific knowledge to explain yet. And modern religions, even, you know, Christianity, a lot of modern religions are still like, okay, we shouldn't have excommunicated Galileo, you know? Yeah, like evolution, yeah. <laughs> like the Catholic Church is like, hey, evolution is not we can accept that as our religion, you know, but we still don't have explanations for where we go and we die or like what we're supposed mm. to do in our lives. And religion can still try to answer some of these tough questions. And you see all that same stuff here, whether we're talking about the Westerosi or the even the children or the Greeks or whatever, a big role of what government is trying to do is answer where we came from, what we're supposed to do, and what the heck is nature doing? Right. Those are like the three things that all of these different things are going to have in common through different cultures, fictional, different time periods, and so on. And so I think you'll see those parallels every time, no matter what. But then the differences in the different religions, that to me is like the, the similarities is like what is like humanity. Mm. The differences is culture. Does that uh, make sense? The differences. Yeah, yeah, so okay. you're going to have a different sort of uh, take on religion or whatever from the Norse gods to the Incas. Right. They, yeah. they have like different lifestyles, different environments. So you get different sorts of beliefs that play out through your religions. So you'll get different children in the forest are going to have different mythological beliefs than the Andals. Mm, or whatever. Yeah. Right on. Now, one pattern we can suss out that is both similar in Greek mythology and in Westerosi history is that you have these really powerful beings at the beginning of the Age of Heroes and in, you know, in, Greek history, they're gods, and in Westerosi history, they're founding figures like Garth Greenhand, Land the Clever, Grey King, etc. Especially, I mean, to focus on the ones who seem to have supernatural powers or lifespans or what have you, whether or not those are the, the product of artifacts or just storytelling works either way here. But it, it kind of goes like the gods have children with mortals, and then those heroes have extra powers because they have godlike blood in them. And then this sort of filter over generations, this thins out until they're kind of normal. For example, with the Ironborn, early in the Age of Heroes, we have the Grey King who defeated Naga, a sea dragon, right? And lived for centuries. But this quote that Ashe is about to read also takes place at the Age of Heroes, but near the end. As the centuries passed, the kingdoms of the Greenlands grew stronger and the Iron Islands weaker. And late in the Age of Heroes, another crisis weakened and divided the Ironborn further still. Upon the death of King Uragon III Greyiron, Uragon the Bald, 
His younger sons hurriedly convened a king's moot whilst their elder brother, Torgon, was raiding up the mander, thinking that one of them would be chosen to wear the driftwood crown. To their dismay, the captains and kings chose Urathon, good brother of Great Wick, instead. The first thing the new king did was command that the sons of the old king be put to death. For that, and for the savage cruelty he oft displayed during his two years as king, Urathon the fourth good brother is remembered in history as bad brother. <laughs> so uh, several reasons I chose that anecdote. And yes, one of them is because bad brother is a pretty hilarious nickname. <laughs> but the origin of the name good brother is part of what makes this anecdote contain so many different things we're speaking to all at once. That name or originates from the fact that the Grey King's brother was important. He was leal. He was uh, a great supporter of the Grey King. So we have all the royal houses of the Ironborn, the Greyjoys, the Grey Irons, all these different houses descend from the Grey King, except House Goodbrother, which descends from this good brother. But speaking to the point of how magic has worn off. Grey King was doing, like I said, all these fancy magical seeming things. But was there anything in that anecdote that seemed even remotely magical? No, right? No, Not yeah. even slightly. You'd think that if they're fighting for the throne, the most powerful thing in the Iron Islands, if anyone had any sort of supernatural anything, they would have used it. You know, they would have brought it to bear. They would have tried to impress people or win followers with it or something, right? But nothing. <laughs> so it really tells you that no one's got extra lifespan. No one's got any magic here. But this is all still the age of heroes. And I say that these are all seem relatively normal humans, but that comes with the caveat that they're Ironborn. <laughs> so, they're, you know, they're, right, they're normal for Ironborn, right? <laughs> it's also, on one hand, more likely to be true, right? This story, when you take out fantastic stuff especially in the world compared to this world where there really may have been magic. But a lot of legends and tales, but part of why they exist or how they get transformed over time is to, there's some moral, right? And some lesson in it. And maybe that's in here too, right? As uh, Ian Dell has pointed out here, that a lot of the stories we have in this ancient time are things that people wrote down way after the fact. The whole Bible was all written down way after the fact. And even once it was written down, they still picked and chose which parts of the written down uh, stories to include in the Bible. Yeah. And they were picking and choosing based on the stories and the lessons that they wanted to teach and spread. So you can imagine the same thing here. If there wanted to be some sort of like a warning about staying in touch with your people, if you're a leader, don't stray too far. You don't know what's happening back at home or how your legacy is going to go down if you're too treacherous. You could see like the lessons in this story that might be more relatable or valuable or important to the culture. Even if the magic is removed, maybe the magic being removed makes it hit closer to home even, makes mm. it more believable or relatable. Yeah. Right on. Well said. Good said, Sean. As I started to talk about earlier, blood relation to gods and heroes is key to rulership as compared to, say, divine right or by right of conquest or both. Like, again, using the example of pharaohs, you have a dynasty of pharaohs. Well, if the first pharaoh of that dynasty is a god, then clearly his relatives must have some godness in them as well, right? Kind of stands to reason. Places like Scandinavia, you and I watched the show Vikings together, right? There's plenty of talk of descent from Ragnar Lothbrok being relevant. Whether or not he was actually a real person is debatable. The, the, his sons were real. 
but were they really his sons, right? That's the question. Yeah. The, the people, there was definitely a guy named Buren Ironside, but was he a son of Ragnar Lothbrook? And was Ragnar Lothbrook what people said he was? That's pretty doubtful. It could be, but, but it's it, doubtful. It, it adds to the validity of the different sons yes. if they all had the same dad. And it adds to the lore and the mystique. And, you know, it might be more likely that there were a series of generations, but after time passes and details are lost, doesn't matter as much as the story of this hero yeah. to the value of their culture. That's what really matters, not the detail of the fact of who the father was or when they lived or whatever at least to the culture. It might matter to uh, a scientist, an intellectual or whatever, but for the sake of the culture of those people, that detail doesn't matter. Maybe it's even better for them all to have the same father, even if he wasn't even a real person. Right on. Also, some of these things are true in China. You've got dynastic semi-godlike figures there. Now, China's gone through some different stages. I don't know China super well, but it's just, it's a good example if you're interested in this sort of thing. Sparta is particularly interesting because they had two kings for a long time in ancient Sparta, and each was of one of the two main bloodline dynasties descended from the one was the of the Heraclidae, which is descendants of Heracles, and one was the Eurypontids, which were descendants of oh, I've forgotten who the other, but they're both descended, they're both like royal lines descended from gods or from heroes who are also descended from gods. So basically the same thing. Nina has a great take here. She's she looked up some other examples of claiming descent from gods in the real world, and just to show how ridiculous it can get. These are some really outstandingly, almost absurd, maybe you, you, can, you can call them absurd, actually, if you want to. I, I wouldn't argue. I think they're, they, maybe they truly are absurd. So she writes, one funny aspect of this is how often dynasties would appropriate heroic figures even from religions opposite those practiced by the dynasties. Long after Christianity became the dominant religion of England, Odin slash Woden was still being cited as an ancestral Anglo-Saxon king. Charles IV, Holy Roman Emperor, had a family tree commission showing his descent from Noah through Jupiter, meaning you know, Jupiter's the Roman Zeus, through Dardanus, the founder of Troy, and eventually to Charlemagne via Aeneas. And like what? All these people. And the Habsburg dynasty not only variously claimed to be descended from Hector of Troy, who was a brother to Aeneas, and the Colonna of Rome, but even fabricated documents supposedly signed by Caesar and Nero, giving them the title of Archduke. What? He claimed that Caesar <laughs> wrote, a t gave him the title Archduke. Like, good Lord. So you can see if that works, if that played, if that somehow is like, yep, we accept this document, then imagine what other sorts of less aggressively fabricated <laughs> versions of documents like this were there. You know, I tell you, I track myself on Ancestry.com and I go to, <laughs> to Ragnar Lothbrok and William the Conqueror. <laughs> you did, yeah, you did get to I William did, the Conqueror. I did get to William the Conqueror and Ragnar. I was like, oh, I don't know that I believe this, but cool, I guess. <laughs> All roads lead to Ragnar. Yeah. <laughs> I, mine, I, did I tell this one about my native ancestry? No. I don't know if I've told it on the show or not. My, I'm related to the uncle of one of Pocahontas's kidnappers. <laughs> uncle, oh, Pocahontas's uncle helped kidnap her, arranged to help um, the Americans kidnap her, and his cut was a copper kettle. Oh, where's your copper kettle? I know, where's my cut? I did not inherit that copper kettle. It was not passed down to me. <laughs> Bull. I'm so angry about that. <laughs> I want the Pocahontas kettle to make my tea. 
Nina continues here. There's another example. One of my favorite examples, she says, is Johann Magnus's 16th century book, History of All Kings of Goths and Swedes. Johannes decided to invent a long genealogy for the kings of Sweden, starting with Magog, who was a grandson of Noah, and allegedly the first king of Sweden, and including Odin and Hodir as historical kings of Sweden. Historical in quotes there, <laughs> in <laughs> air quotes. Before getting to historically verifiable rulers and the influence of this book is still around today. And even though the current king of Sweden is styled Carl the 16th, there's only 10 historically verifiable Swedish kings named Carl. <laughs> so like, where are these other Carls coming from? You got some excess Carls coming around here. Yeah, Carl Carlson. Carl, yeah. It's like the Simpsons. Carl the 15th is in Aquatine Hunger Force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's from an offshoot branch there. But but that's similar <laughs> to what you brought up last time about Sam and the Lord Commanders. He's like, this is a much mm -hmm. larger... There's a lot more missing Lord Commanders than there are missing Carls. But still, <laughs> it's a similar concept, right? Now, here's another fun quote. We, we were, as we move past the Greek mythology for now, there's going to be a little more of it later because there's a lot of, well, well, let me get to that after the quote. This is what, this is, remember when I said that Hesiod really didn't like the Iron Age that he found himself living in? Well, here's his description of it, and you can see why he didn't like it. During this age, humans lived in existence of toil and misery. Children dishonor their parents, brother fights with brother, and the social contract between guests and hosts is forgotten. During this age, might makes right, and bad men use lies to be thought good. At the height of this age, humans no longer feel shame or indignation or wrongdoing. Babies will be born with gray hair, and the gods will have completely forsaken humanity. There will be no help against evil. Maybe silver hair. Yeah, <laughs> silver hair, yeah. <laughs> so he's writing about the time he lived in. It wasn't like writing on the history. That was like, this is himself. And... You can see a lot of the things that people associate with society going downhill or a lot of and a lot of things that the first men established as cultural values. Now, he, he says brother fights with brother and the so, uh, which is that's skin slaying, right? It's more specifically fratricide, but it, it's meant to be I think a description of all infighting between fam families, not just brothers. And not just killing. And not just killing. Yeah, you're right. Not just killing. By the way, today I learned or Two days ago, when writing this, I learned that fratricide is brother killing brother and sororicide is sister killing sister. <laughs> that is the official term for it. So frat and sorority. <laughs> yeah, they, they I apply didn't know that either. Isn't that neat? And also, I posted around our social media. You the, don't hear it because we don't kill each other that yeah, often. Right. Yeah. Women. <laughs> <laughs> no, they just tease each other to death. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Yeah, it's like boys beat each other up, girls tease each other till they have... Fun. Boys kill each other. Yeah, boys kill each other, girls tease each other till they have complexes. Fellow right? <laughs> jackets scenario. Yeah. <laughs> Funny anecdote. I posted around to all our social media sites that if you go to the Wikipedia page for fratricide, there are 10 examples from books listed. It's like, from books, fratricide examples. Like six of the 10 examples are from A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> six of them. And one of them is from the Forsaken chapter. So it's a freaking Winds of Winter spoiler. Like, what? <laughs> like, that would be so weird. Imagine you're like, you're just reading Wikipedia like you normally do. You're on that page. And you're like, what the hell? Like you're on Greyjoy Kills his bro. What? You know? <laughs> Yeah, it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. So it's got like stuff about the Blackfires. It's got stuff about multiple things about the Blackfires. It's got Renly and Stannis. It's got, yeah, <laughs> it's all these things in there. 
that's pretty funny. But that is, it's fascinating too that a guest right is mentioned here. You've got the social contract between a guest and host is forgotten. This is something we'll talk about later because the connection between Greek mythology and Greek, not just mythology, but Greek, ancient Greek culture really heavily revolves around guest right being a super important hospitality. The rights of hospitality is really important. And they're extremely similar to the the versions that we find in A Song of Ice and Fire. So this is something that I need to do more research on, but tuck that away for later. It should be really cool. And of course, might makes right. I mean, that's that describes Westeros pretty well in a lot of ancient societies. So that's apparently he in his Hesiod's belief that there had been a time before him that might didn't make right. It made left or I don't know. <laughs> it's <laughs> might still makes right, honestly. Yeah, like, it really it's, still it's does. Still, it just uh, does it differently. <laughs> yeah. It's a little more subtle. We might have better intentions or, or be able to spin it differently, but but really when it comes down to, in a way, even democracy is sort of like might right makes right. Like yeah, if the, more people agree yeah, than the other, well, we can overcome you and make you do it our way. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily come down to violence, but really might makes right is at the core of almost everything. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And it says there will be no help against evil is the last line. The gods will have completely forsaken humanity. Maybe that's because they didn't exist. Maybe because Zeus wasn't real, Hesiod. <laughs> but uh, here in Westeros, it's Zeus a similar thing. There's, the gods aren't going to help. Lightning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it just started storming here in Roswell, Georgia. All of a sudden. Sorry, Zeus. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Zeus. We, this is a lot of hatred on Zeus this episode. What up, Z? Yeah, uh, I, should, I did once get referred to as Zeus. At a oh, wing place, people just don't know. Some people just don't know the a name Zeus. is Zeus. So like they they're like leave your name. What you know? Like I put my order in. They're like okay, thank Here you. you. And then Zeus. they call Zeus. Your order's ready. And I'm like, is that me? <laughs> and I go up it there, and they didn't just spell it funny. It said Z E U S. They're like screw it. We're just writing Zeus. He'll figure it out. <laughs> Z. Some people have power thrust. I, I like them. to think that there was someone else there. Aziz. I had wings thrust upon me. That's there funny. was someone else there who ordered the same wings named Zeus. Who was like, what the hell? Where'd yeah, my, food like, go? Where my wings at? No wonder they didn't taste I will right. Smite thee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were thunderbolt flavored mm, mm, Greek wings. Yeah. So let's talk about a few other examples that are not Greek. Um, we want some examples that are more recent. Just like we talked about earlier in this episode, we're trying to do some of the same framing. We wanted to talk about what history will think of current characters. And we take a long view back at the far uh, long ago age of heroes and then compare that to the long ago real world Greek age of heroes. Well, what about more recent heroic eras in the real world? Well, one of the best examples is the U.S. has its own age of heroes, the folklore era. And what makes it so interesting is how recent it is. We're talking the Greek age of heroes is 3,500 years ago, which is kind of like the end of the Westerosi age of heroes, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 maybe. So a brief foray into a few American examples is a great fit because, it, well, for one thing, it's a certainty George knows a lot of them, himself being very well read and an American person. They also help us imagine this qu open question of how more recent history will look because we're talking only 100 to 400 years instead of the several thousand years example. So let's have a few examples here. Paul Bunyan. We'll start off with some that are pure fiction uh, and move towards ones that are mostly fiction, but based on real people who were become larger than life, which is a type of character we're interested in for this uh, exercise of examining age of heroes figures and trying to get an idea of what's just myth, what's real supernatural ability, and what's in between. 
So Paul Bunyan's a good example. He had a, an axe so big that just dragging it behind him made the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I mean, whoa, damn, that's a big axe. He had a blue ox named Babe, which is kind of a strange name for a blue ox. Really, for any animal, I don't know. It's just kind of well, but it's a blue pig. It's a pig a too. Pig. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what? <laughs> so not, not a blue pig. pig, just a pig. I don't know why I said blue there. An ox is an just a regular what? pig. Yeah. Or as used to saying, "Babe" is a weird name but an ox for is, any animal. Yeah, I guess I just well, I, Babe the pig. Yeah, you know, yeah. The movie, then. Yeah, no, I just thought he was calling an ox a pig. I was confused. Oh. <laughs> I thought he was saying it was a blue pig. I was like, an ox is not a pig. See, he's well <laughs> in Valyria, where they do strange blood magic experiments. <laughs> they do have pig oxes. <laughs> okay, okay, nice save, nice save. Yeah, they actually argue over whether it should be a pig ox or an ox pig, but you know, we'll let the we'll let the Valyrians worry about that. And he, at one point, Paul Bunyan rescued a redheaded giant woman from an avalanche, which sounds a little bit like an inverse of Tormund's story about being rescued by a giantess, and, <laughs> you know, or the bear story. Because, you know, especially thinking that Tormund's show version is redheaded, it helps, you know, kind of fit that all that together. Now, Paul Bunyan may have been based on a real person. He came from, he, he was, he's from a, like a lumberjack tradition, definitely massively commercialized afterwards. And that's really important because... Folklore versus mythology. There's an important difference, which is that mythology a lot of times is, we talked about like, where did Zeus come from as far as the idea? Like, why did people agree on this figure being the father of everything? Well, you know, how did that come about? Probably through, you know, a lot of it's maybe through the nobility, right? They're in, trying to enforce certain social orders, certain power centers like priests, maybe they invent some of this stuff or, or describe it, take what's already there, take current beliefs. Perpetuate it. You perpetuate it, detail it, you know, add something to it. The difference with folklore, this is a very important difference, is it comes through the common people. It's, it's stories that are invented and retold and spread with more grassroots origins. So it's... It, stories that rise up rather than trickle down. Right. Good. That's a great way to put it. Well point. But they're still both subject to the same manipulation, which is why Paul Bunyan is a good place to start because even if he may have been a real person, even if he came from, had a grassroots origin, he's been so commercialized and, and marketed on that those origins are gone, right? It's, it doesn't resemble that anymore. Pico's Bill is, is, is a good example of one that's seen as folklore and still even accepted as folklore, but it's pretty much just the invention of one guy. Pico's Bill was raised by coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> he fell off a, a wagon train near the Picos River. That's part of one of these elements of folklore that's kind of neat is that you get these like really tall tale, like these ex exaggerated details, but it helps you. These details are still relevant to maintaining the origin of the story. The part about him being raised by a coyote is like, okay, that's not really possible. But because it's so outlandish, it helps the story survive. And the the fact that it's located near the Picos River, that tells you where the story originated or what region it comes from. And that's part of the truth that comes out of it. No matter how the details of the stories get exaggerated, the origin, part, parts of it re that remain can still tell you where it came from. So <laughs> Picos Bill had a horse called Widowmaker because his horse was named Widowmaker because this horse was the most notorious serial killer in Texas. What? Yes. First and most notorious serial killer in Texas. <laughs> uh, he had a whip called Shake, which was a rattlesnake, which he, he multiple times lassoed a tornado. He wrestled a bear, the Bear Lake monster, and defeated it. He also married a woman named Slu Sue, and 
Widowmaker got jealous of their relationship because he had his relationship with Pico's bill. So one day he bucked her off and she started bouncing on her bustle. She wore a bustle. And apparently in the world of Pico's bill, physics works the opposite. Because normally when you bounce a little less each time, right? Like at a trampoline, you get a little less. Her bouncing got progressively bigger. Like each bounce, she went higher and higher. And Pico's bill like jumped to grab her and pull her back down. But, you know, this is reverse physics. So he just, they just went higher and higher. <laughs> went up with her. Yeah, they went to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and Widowmaker felt real bad about this. There's different versions of this. They're really grim. Like one version is he just realized he couldn't save her. So he shot her <laughs> so, so that she wouldn't starve to death. It's like, Jesus. <laughs> and then Widowmaker felt really bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you should, damn it. You should feel bad. Yeah. You know, another thing similar to the idea of religion is a lot of folklore, a lot of stories that rise from the common people are also very similar, even are coming from different periods and different areas. Pecos Bill being raised by coyotes, it's not that far off from Tarzan, for example. Mm. You know? And, uh, you know, the story of Snow White, or not Snow White, uh, Cinderella. Yeah. There, that story, there are dozens and dozens of versions of that story through cultures throughout the world, throughout history of the lower class girl encountering the upper class guy with a shoe that doesn't fit. There's like a million versions of that. And a lot of them, it's suspected, like uh, grow from the same roots or they like one was learned from another or exposed from one culture. But a lot of them, as far as anyone can tell, developed independently They're from yeah. places and times in the world that couldn't have been connected to each other. They still came up with the same story. Huh. Yeah, that's neat, right? Because they, yeah, they just kind of, they, they emphasize the same things or they value some of the same things. And yeah, yeah, that's neat. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating how some of that works. Another example is John the Conqueror. This was an African-American folk hero. Part of his legendary is being a, a slave. And he rode a giant crow called Old Familiar. And there's a root called John, well, it's got a lot of different names, but it's the root that he is supposedly the one who originated it, he planted it basically, and it's imbued with powers and they are associated with the hoodoo religion. And hoodoo is really interesting because hoodoo is a slave religion and it's kept secret by practitioners, which is, if you remember, the Lady of Battle, the Lady of Spears is a religion invented by the Unsullied that they don't want to talk about with other people. Like Danny talks to them a little about it and she's, and, and I forget which one, maybe Hero or Grey Worm is like, well, she's the Lady of Spears. We worship her and ah, I've already said too much. You know, we're, it's only for us. It's only for those of us who have been through this training and all that. Like she's our goddess and we don't share knowledge of her with others. This is very similar, right? Because they're ex-slaves too, right? And well, only under Danny were they ex-slaves under what presumably when the religion was developed, it was, you know, for people who were only enslaved. So that's really cool. Like I hadn't even heard of John the Conqueror. I'd heard of Picos Bill and Paul Bunyan. But John the Conqueror was also a shapeshifter. So he's a, he rode a giant crow and was a shapeshifter. So and hmm. feels like a lot of influences all at once there. Three different influences. You could potentially see all of those in a song. I feel of like Empire. he's a character that would be brought up in American Gods. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah, I, uh... that, that would be a good one. But yeah, I do think of American Gods during this discussion about folk folklore and, you know, Age of Heroes. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's totally about. Right. They are like, yeah, they're like the American Age of Heroes or, or they're not all Americans. In, in, yeah, they're in, not all originally American. It it's just takes they, place there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know American Gods super well, but yeah, it's that uh, you're, you're totally right. I think that fits really well. well. Common themes here, you know, great feats, deeds of labor, adventure. But one thing that's missing not important is, is blood connection. Like no one cares about having a blood connection to Picos Bill or 
Paul Bunyan or these next group of characters like Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, John Henry, Molly Pitcher, George Washington. Being George Washington's son doesn't give you a claim to the presidency. It gives you a leg up in politics for sure. But it's not like a claim, right? It's not, well, I was president, so my son should be. In fact, America was specifically trying to avoid that sort of thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It still important. helps like name brand recognition, you know, the nature of democracy, it's going to help. Yeah, but, I mean, we've uh, had two Bushes be president, you know, and we've had yeah. you know, these other relationships and Kennedys have been all over politics. There's still political families that do all these things, but yeah, it's not the same as claims, as blood claims. Um, yeah, it's not legally connected in any way. Yeah, next we have Daniel Boone, who was a real person, but stories about him are highly exaggerated. But he's really, there's a little bit of Garth Greenhand in him because he's credited with paving the way for civilization. Like a man who went out there and explored. He went west a lot and lived with the natives quite a bit. He was respected by the natives different times. He fought against them and with them. <laughs> so it's, you know, he had a dynamic life in that sense. But this is a really important understanding like how settling work. You know, you have someone who explores a whole region and that kind of, proves that it can be lived in. You're like, well, yeah, there's herds here. There's rivers here. There's, you know, someone has to go there. You can't just take your family there and go, okay, where are we going to plop down and build a house? You need to have that stuff settled ahead of time, right? A funny anecdote with him is that he was adopted by Shawnee Chief Blackfish <laughs> at one point. So Blackfish, all right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? You know, Davy Crockett's similar, you know, also sort of a frontiersman, got a very storied life. He was in the House of Representatives representing... Tennessee for a few terms. And, it, you know, at, at some points he was in the military fighting against Native Americans. But at other points he got to know and even uh, advocated for Native, Native Americans. Like one issue he had as a politician in Tennessee was like there were wealthy people who owned huge tracts of land, hardly even knew what land they owned, where there were other people who just went out and started farming and built a house, didn't even know they were on someone else's land per se, you know, Wild West, if you will, back then. So he had to kind of reconcile that. He was like part of like figuring out how laws deal with squatters or, or how to manage that. And, and, and of course, the natives claimed all that land in the first place. And he went on to vote against the action by Andrew Jackson that ended up being the Trail of Tears. Hmm. David Crockett was fighting against that, even though at some points he was fighting against the natives, in other ways he was fighting for them. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, yeah, it's, I guess, a function of different tribes, different situations, different alliances. Yeah, it's... it's Different opinions through his life. He grew and changed. Yeah, true that. Yeah, absolutely. John Henry, of course, a lot of y'all will be familiar with that. That was another African-American folk hero, but was a real person. But the stories about him, uh, the story of him, like, beating a steam engine while hammering the, the railroad is... Not very likely to be true. <laughs> you know, it's it, there's less suspicion about whether that story is true as it is where it happened. Oh, yeah? There, okay. Like, okay. There's like strong evidence that it really happened, but there's three different tunnels that were built that claim that's where it happened, but there's no oh. solid proof that any of them are the one. But there is decent proof that it did happen. But Yeah. So, yeah, so it gives you the same idea. Like, people are trying to claim that this is where John Henry did this because they recognize that's a, a, a powerful legend. And Adds to the mystique. Yeah, and the it'll add tourism or, or just yeah. put their community on the map. These are the same concepts Westerosi houses are, are looking at when they're trying to give themselves clout, you know? <laughs> they're trying to pump up their ancestors to pump up themselves and to establish that for their for future generations. Molly Pitcher, another one, is kind of interesting. She was a water carrier in the war. Uh, the Revolutionary War, I believe. And that's really, was really important because the water carriers were right there in the action with 
cooling off the cannons. That's what the water is for. So, you know, you're directly in the line of fire. So it's a good example of the type of figure that is not normally recognized, but is in just as much danger as most soldiers by being in the direct line of fire, doing a vital task, but because it's not shooting at other people because it's a woman or what have you, there's a lot of gendered historian stuff going on where they just don't, you know, they don't get written about or what have you, but she's an exception. She got remembered anyway. And, uh, that's pretty cool. You know, we brought up Washington before the idea that he technically isn't even the first president and how sometimes those technicalities can matter or cause something to be forgotten about another interesting idea or, or piece to his life, his lore, the story of him chopping down the chariot tree. Like um, most people have heard that. that yeah, I grew up hearing he that, right? As, yeah. Well, one, the whole story is suspect. The guy who wrote about that, there's many other things that he wrote that weren't true. And he <laughs> even admitted that he was oh, just wow. trying to teach lessons. They were like fables, like Aesop's uh, fables. Okay. He was just trying to teach lessons and Washington's a good character to teach this lesson with. But even in his story, Washington doesn't actually chop down the cherry tree. He just hacks at it. He doesn't actually <laughs> chop it down. <laughs> so, so even in the story uh, where he chops down the cherry yeah. tree, he doesn't chop down the cherry tree. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I didn't know that. You know, That's and, cool. And here's an example uh, of something. It's it's almost like the other direction, how a lot of times the stories like embellish something or, or maybe are meant to teach some positive lesson. But Ponce de Leon, he was searching for the fountain of youth, right? Yeah. Wrong. No, he wasn't. He never searched for the fountain of youth at all. There's no evidence of any kind that he was searching for the fountain of youth. Really? He was just a president of Puerto Rico. And there was a lot of politicking actually between him and Christopher Columbus's son. And he eventually was ousted. He became governor of some other territory in Florida. But after his death, they wrote stories about how he was on this folly, you know, adventure trying really? to find a fountain. They were just trying to discredit him after the fact. They were trying to make him look silly for trying to find a fountain of views. He, he never actually did that. But that story was just accepted by people who wanted to support the Columbus side. Wow. And he became a, a stooge, if you will. And I think there's less negative connotation around his story now than it was at the time. But you blew my mind true. there, man, because let me tell you, let me show you how this relates to me personally. I spent a large portion of my life looking for the fountain, looking of youth. for the fountain of youth. <laughs> and I followed Ponce de Leon's direct. No, I lived in Tallahassee for nine years, which is Leon County named for mm -hmm. Ponce de Leon and all over this county and in other areas of Florida, you find like roadside stops where it's just a little blurb about Ponce de Leon. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and they're yep. <laughs> and about searching for the fountain of youth, and it all—it's just like yeah, it's official. It's like stuff all over, like little roadside stands with a map and a picture of him and a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> That's yeah, I think there's wells in Florida that like people go as like a tourist site, people to go drink water from. That's wow. supposedly the fountain of youth or whatever. But I, just, maybe there is a fountain of youth. Maybe people search for it. But, Not him. Hmm. And yeah, and then you said Christopher Columbus that was related to... His son was the governor that took over oh. when he got ousted. But it's also worth noting, Christopher Columbus never really found America. He you didn't, know what yeah. I mean? Like that's uh, so for... And, and this, by the way, is another... I really wanted to talk about this for a second because... Oh, wait, no, he didn't find the, the passage. He did find America. He didn't find the passage to... Well, he didn't find mainland America. Oh, okay. He never got to mainland America. He never believed that he found America. To his dying day, he, he thought, thought it was he Europe. found yeah, India. You're right. Or you India, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, <laughs> other Europeans found America before then anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like almost every angle and, you yeah. can take. <laughs> but for hundreds of years, Christopher Columbus discovered America. That was like the story. That's yeah. what we learned, right? Yeah. 
But now we're starting to look at it differently. But I think it's especially too. relevant to our idea of how people will be remembered down the road. Mm. There might be a phase where a character is remembered one way, but it might change a little farther down. Yeah, right on. You're tra- yeah, you might, when, might when we're be talking a, about Danny or John or whoever. There know. may be like a, a historical rehabilitation. That you're right, totally right. That happens. Yeah. It absolutely happens. Just people take a second look, and and people start to be like, yeah, based on certain modern values or touched on. This person exuded these values. Maybe that's a good reason to relook at them. And yeah, and then if that happens, the news spreads, and and that helps set the record straight. Sometimes we can hope. Final example from American folklore is Johnny Appleseed, and and the reason he's so relevant is because he perhaps most of all, is a parallel to a, a Song of Ice and Fire figure, Garth Greenhand. Johnny Appleseed was a reverend, an arborist, a builder of nurseries. And it's interesting that he was a reverend because the apples aren't so popular in the Bible, <laughs> as, you, as you may recall, given the, the forbidden fruit business. But Johnny Appleseed was different in that regard. So yeah, he was he, he, the the notion of him just going around spreading seeds randomly is is not very accurate. He was much more tending to these things. He would plant nurseries and and help them grow. He wouldn't just move on quickly after planting some seeds. He was also a big friend of the natives. He befriended the natives, and uh, the, some natives said he was touched by the Great Spirit. He became vegetarian in later life. One massive difference between him and Garth Greenhand is he never married. So it doesn't seem like he had any kids, whereas Garth Greenhand had like a bajillion children, or at least the stories say he did. But this is pretty different from the Johnny Appleseed of legend, where he's just like this green man with a sack walking around throwing willy-nilly and things sprouting everywhere, right? But this is a very, very specific exacting person that was very cautious and careful and and open-handed, but not random, not, uh, (laughs) you know... Not you know, I wish I knew wanderer. the details. I wish I knew the details better, but I'm sure they're connected to this story of Johnny Appleseed. Is it was like a policy when the American government was, I don't know, sponsoring or divvying out land as people moved out west. It was a requirement. You know, when you were allocated your acreage of land, you had to cover 20% of it with trees. You had to plant oh, trees. Wow. That was part of the deal. And that's one reason that there are trees across a lot of Middle America mm. is because they were planted. It was like this. They they just knew we're gonna need it for like building building homes and firewood, and it's it's gonna be like this resource that we want to cultivate across the land. It was like an active process to plant trees across America. Yeah. And you're sort of seeing there's certainly some efforts to do that again now. It's not as not a law like that's much stricter and stronger, yeah. but still, yeah. That's I mean, cool. back that the, the revolutionary times, like Ben Franklin, he was aware he was seeing the forests of Pennsylvania just be decimated. He's like, yeah. we need to have more efficient stoves. We need to have rules. It's causing pollution, burning all this wood. Like it, there was an awareness, surprisingly, yeah. in that time period of environmental concern. More yeah. Than now, a little <laughs> yeah. Bit. The Middle East used to be a lot more lush. Greece used to have a lot more trees. Yeah. A lot of places were deforested in, in ancient times in ways that they could tell. You're right. I mean, Benjamin Franklin is in ancient times, but it's a little while back. So yeah, that's a really good point. You can see how these are really interesting because they're so recent. This isn't old. This isn't ancient stuff. When you're t- talking about Johnny Appleseed, that dude died like 150 years ago or something. This is not ancient history. This isn't even old, that old. We're talking a matter of generations. Yet already people are telling wild tales and exaggerations and complete fabrications about these recent figures. So it's really just a natural facet of our history, I guess. You can look anywhere in history and see this. And these stories, whether they're true or not, they're a massive influence 
And as, as Sean and Nashay and I have talked about, occasionally these the truths come out, but a lot of times it takes generations or centuries, if at all. And sometimes the reverse happens, right? You've got the truth is established for a while, and then someone decides to come in and change it. And then says, no, <laughs> this is the real story, but it's totally made up. It's just for them to take power or to hold power or it's usually something to do with power or money or both. Yeah. So we know my grandfather wasn't Frank. My grandfather was Odin. (laughs) (laughs) Frank Odin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Nina says, I like how George has incorporated this idea that appears in many cultures around the world, this notion of a specifically past age of greatness and legend. There is often a nostalgia to be found about these sorts of lost ages. Amazing things happen, but it was a long time ago, a time that we modern people can't go back to. (laughs) It's easy to mythologize an era that is long past when living memory of that time is gone except in Westeros, maybe via the Weirwoods. So this is a thing that George may specifically have looked at the way real history works and specifically tried to find some ways to get around that for within his world. And, and the Weirwoods are a good possibility for that, not just they're, them holding the information, but the people who have the magical ability to tap into that. She continues, the stories are what remain, and as people invariably look for a better time than the present, the stories about the past grow. Yeah, the worst time, the worse the current times get, I suppose, the more nostalgia and more mythologization of the past can happen. What do you think about that, Sean? I think that was a really good, a good said by Nina there. It's uh, thought provoking for sure. Yeah, I don't want to take away from it with my humorous point, but <laughs> I don't understand why no stories of days of yore and the mythological times of great deeds and powerful heroes no one had air conditioning. I don't care about any of that old time period. I want to live right now with air conditioning. <laughs> you wonder why there aren't ancient stories of the air conditioners, like someone inventing that. I mean, like, yes, yeah, so I made the air cooler. <laughs> Everyone comes. All the boys flock to my air conditioner. We will start next time with Garth Greenhand and using some of what we've discussed we'll finish today with some more questions and thoughts from you all on what some things will look like. Comment from a comment from last week from YouTube. This is from Tara Marie. Greetings. I have loved watching your streams and videos for a few years now, but always seem to miss you live. One thing that has always thrown me off with all the comparisons in lore theory and other authors that you catch, there has never been a parallel made with the children and green men in George R. R. Martin's work and the tribal people in Robin Hobb's series, The Soldier's Son. They are dapple skinned, have magic. The magic users go to a special kind of tree when they die. And when the more advanced people begin invading and cutting down the trees, the tribal people very aggressively attack because their ancestors are being attacked. Granted, this is not as well known a series or as good as the other Hobbes series of which many parallels are made with some of George's work, but I wanted to mention it since it has never come up and you all are incredibly well-researched and see so many other parallels. As always, thank you for your great content. Well, I appreciate all the kind words there, Tara. Yeah, so that is a pretty strong parallel. I can't speak to this too specifically. I haven't read that, uh, the Soldier Sun series, but I do note that it was written in 2005 to 2007. So it sounds like Robin Hobb was giving George a nod there. And um, I know he has complimented her works before. So maybe this is a little bit of back and forth. You nod at my work. I nod at yours. A little, mm-hmm, yes. That's pretty cool. Thanks for that. I, I definitely didn't know about that. I imagine a few of you others are happy to hear Robin Hobb get mentioned. Certainly when people throw out recommendations for things to read, 
that are in a Song of Ice and Fire to get through the long night. I've heard Robin Hobb <laughs> mentioned a lot of times, certainly in the top five, along with a few others of, of things to look into. Shout out to Richard of House York on Twitter, who sent us a link to the Blue Fugates. Did I say that right? Yeah, Fugate. The Blue Fugates. Look up the Blue Fugates. It's spelled F-U-G-A-T-E-S, F-U-Gates. One word, F-U-Gates. And <laughs> these folk come from Kentucky, Hazard County, Kentucky, not to be confused with Hazard County, Georgia, which is fictional from the Dukes of Hazard. This is a real county. These folks have methemoglobinemia. Yes, the word meth associated with <laughs> blue. And yes, they didn't do blue meth. This isn't a Breaking Bad reference. But yeah, no, they really have blue tin skin. It's freaky. Look them up. And one of them looks like Papa Smurf. And that was his nickname because he had <laughs> blue skin and a white beard. And whoa, it's strange. But it apparently comes from just having a lack of oxygen and a genetic condition that caused a lack of oxygen in a lot of different tissues. Yeah, blue tinged skin was one of the effects, but definitely not the most serious. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is an incest thing in this case. So uh, the real green men are clearly <laughs> just incestual Kentuckians. Yes, from Hazard County. <laughs> also, relevant news here, everyone. I did get the green man suit. For our Green Man oh, yeah. cosplay for Ice and Firecon, I've gotten the suit. Aziz has to try it on. I've tried it on. I posted a picture in the chat. And uh, Sean's going to get his. And it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's all happening. One of the first things we learned, which one commenter warned us about ahead of time, is that Green Man suits don't leave a lot to the imagination as far as body outlines. They are... Yes. They are snug. Yeah, I'm wearing <laughs> shorts in, uh, over mine for that reason. Total random reference, Quakers call non-Quakers worldlings, like people who live out in the world, <laughs> worldly people. Mm. So I wonder if that's where George got the notion for wildlings. It's, it's kind of obscure. It may not be connected, but you know, Quakers, there's a lot of Quakers in, in Pennsylvania and in the Northeast there, and, and George is from New Jersey. So that's kind of nearby. So eh, it's possible. Maester Warland says, I could see both the learning and the inheriting of the magic from the children playing a part in the Age of Heroes, particularly Garth Greenhand's green thumb corresponding to a deeper connection with nature learned from the children. Not Age of Heroes specific, but the inherited aspect of green seers and wargs reminds me of the real life study that showed the necessary high altitude genetic mutations present in modern day people on the Tibetan plateau were actually inherited from the Denisovans the humans interbred with upon arrival. Now, if you're not familiar with Denisovans, we mentioned them a little bit in our When Giants Roamed episode, but they were uh, a different humanoid species, kind of like Neanderthals, that is no longer exist, but their DNA exists in a lot of people around the world. And so this is a good example. They were cave people, mountain people a lot of times. So apparently there's some lingering DNA that was adapted to high altitude stuff that sticks around because it's still very useful. Um, for people living there. But that's pretty neat. I didn't know that about the, the Tibetan Plateau people. That's pretty cool. Boy, they learn some fascinating stuff about going into gene history, don't they? Yeah. Maester Worland also says, regarding the second age of heroes, I love thinking about this in the context of A Song of Ice and Fire because the way songs and stories in world are shown is both powerful and fallible. I could see the Brienne the Beauty moniker lose its context and become literal in the retelling. That's a great example. Yeah, people just yeah. think that yeah. Brienne was actually really good looking or something or traditionally beautiful or whatever. Like the number of people who've really seen her versus the number of people who will hear stories about her is a huge disparity, yeah. you know? 
and especially as time passes and the more grand her deeds are, the less relevant it will be to talk about what she look, hopefully, <laughs> the less relevant it will be to talk about what she actually looked like. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Sarcasm doesn't carry over the centuries very well, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if y'all remember, I've ever seen the show The Wire, but this makes me think of that where there's a, bu- a bunch of cops roll up on some street corner kids and they're looking for one. They're like, all right, which one of you is little Kevin? And this huge guy is like, what do you get get away from me, y'all? How could I be little Kevin? And the one one cop looks at him like, yeah, all right. Yeah, you're right. How could you be little Kevin? But it's he is little Kevin because yeah. it's a sarcastic <laughs> nickname. The guy's huge. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the kind of same thing. Another example, I can see Danny's legend being extremely different in Essos as compared to Westeros. The Essosi legends focusing on freeing the slaves, maybe burning some cities, burning some slavers. Whereas the Westerosi legends will have more to do with you know, maybe the long night stuff, maybe accidentally or intentionally blowing up King's Landing, whatever actually happens, bringing people across, bringing the Dothraki or Valoris over, whatever she does, all these different things. It's hard to figure, but it, it definitely makes sense to parse her associate deeds with her Westerosi deeds, given the, this, the logistics of history and who's going to be writing it down and who's going to have lived through it. I, I, that's a great take. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I definitely like that. that, that but my mind started spinning on that one, actually, all the different, and we've even touched on it, how it might be remembered differently in different places, but same thing in the real world too, you know, mm-hmm. like, again, we've kind of come around on Christopher Columbus in modern times, but for a long time, you know, the, the masses of America, the legend of Christopher Columbus is probably a lot different from the natives of America's oh, gosh, yeah. legacy of Christopher Columbus. Yeah, that's a very good point. Who would ever, what, what native people would remember him fondly? Yeah, he was a slaver, mm-hmm. rapist, all these awful things. Yeah. Bad even, for, and, and it's not even like standards of his time doesn't even excuse him because he was bad for his standards of his time. Yeah. yeah. Like he was prosecuted for some of his treatment of the natives, even in his own country. That it was, you really got to do badly for the nobility <laughs> to prosecute you for the treatment of peasants in another nation. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Non-Christians at that. I mean, a lot of people actually mention this, uh, something similar to this point about Danny being remembered separately. But uh, a few others mentioned, and I have to agree, that she, especially in Westeros, she may be remembered unfondly, even if she does great deeds, because, well, history is often unkind to women. History is unkind, to especially this very patriarchal society that Westeros is around. And you've got only men writing history, at least as things are right now. And there may be resentment over her bringing certain other cultures into Westeros, like the Dothraki or what have you. They may blame her for that if there's, you know, collateral damage because of that. So, yeah. I, that's, that's think how point. easy it would be to paint Danny in a bad light. Like now, again, you know, over time it'll change and the different things that she does. But right now, someone could say she married a rapist and a slave trader and had a man beheaded. Yeah, yeah. Those would be true things to say about her. Killed her own brother, right? Yeah, she killed, yeah, had her own brother killed, yeah. Yeah, just all these things. I mean, you can even see that, that people are already saying that. In some of the yeah. Winds of Winter spoiler chapters, when news of Danny starts to reach Dorne, like it's some of the thing, like Ariane hears these things and is, whoa, this is who my brother went to go see? <laughs> like, crap, <laughs> you know? Uh-oh, you know, she's not worried about him, but she's worried that he'll marry her and then <laughs> be like dangerous. Uh-oh. I don't Like need- if she does enough great things for enough great people and enough time passes those will be forgotten or less meaningful. But yeah. if she does enough bad things and uh, upsets enough people, in the short run at least, those will be what's highlighted about her. Yeah. Anthony De Palma says, I imagine something similar for Jon Snow. His greatest deed 
making peace with the free folk could also lead to more violence and chaos, which, yeah, we, we referenced that earlier. So we have another person agreeing with that. Some in the watch would say he was a traitor. He might be remembered as someone who's, who claimed himself a wildling king. That's something we didn't mention. Someone who took a fire witch to bed, like Melisandre or someone who had consorted with a fire witch. That's also a good point because association with Melisandre could look quite different in the future or, or in the current times too. He could be remembered as someone who practiced blood magic to break free from his vows. You know, someone who turned on the Night's Watch. There's a lot of things. But other- John's already broken his vows multiple times, right? He yeah. he abandoned the Night's Watch. Like, they brought him back. He didn't get caught or in trouble exactly, but like, yeah. he slept with the woman, which maybe Sam or someone will argue that's not quite brave, but it was a wildling woman. Like, it, yeah. he's already on thin ice in a lot of ways. That's you know? true. That's very true. But Anthony says some will, some will remember him, whether history records him this way or not. They'll remember him as a peacemaker, a uniter, the free folk themselves. For example, we'll probably a lot of them will probably look on mm-hmm. him as a good thing. Although a lot of them may not. They may they may be like this these, this guy was made us slaves of us. Like the one some of the free folk are, are looking at him like that right now. Um, even as he's trying to save them. So you know it's it's just uh, it's hard to please everyone even as you're saving their life. <laughs> for approximately half of America, for generation after generation, Abraham Lincoln was a villain. <sighs> That's a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. Anthony says, I imagine Sir Brienne the Tall, breaker of glass ceilings, will make sure to correct the record regarding Jamie. Whatever, however history remembers him, she will be the one that gets to maybe write in the white book. <laughs> That's a good possibility mm. there. <laughs> yeah, so if she's in charge of writing that particular bit of history, we can count on that being at least um, accurate. It won't be too embellished. <laughs> and it will be someone who knew the person well that they're writing about, which is not typical of history. <laughs> Usually you're writing about people you have no idea about personally. Finally, Anthony says, Rhaegar, Simon, and Jared Frey will be remembered for being the best tasting pie in Westeros. <laughs> so delicious that Wyman Manderly savored every bite and washed it all down with Arbor Gold. (laughs) And Nina gives us our last comment here. This is a key reason why I feel confident for Sam to be a POV who survives the whole story. Sam is very clearly the author's analog more than any other character besides maybe Tyrion as George's favorite, but even George has said he's more like Sam than Tyrion. The one who loves history and stories and wants to preserve them. Someone who has to be left to write the story. Someone has to be around from the main cast to preserve the tale for the next generation. And the logical person for that is Sam. Hard to disagree with that, huh? That's a good said right there. I just wanted to make a comment about Tyrion and Sam and just say that Tyrion is, of course, what George wishes he could be as witty as that. So quickly he's commented. He wishes he could reply like that, but he's more Sam. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have recently, I don't remember what got the idea in my head, but started thinking of another person who was a good candidate to record a lot of this history is Davos. Mm. Like, but in some ways, he doesn't seem likely, like he can barely read, but then maybe that adds to the irony or the importance of him being the one. He could dictate and stories been, to someone else, maybe. He, or, yeah. yeah, and he's been there for a lot of key moments. He's someone that would be trustworthy to tell the stories true and Clearly, Yandel... Is is the one who's taking the story yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, what we need. Yeah. We need Sam like in a room with like Davos and Sansa and a few others who like were real eyewitnesses to so many things <laughs> that are fairly, yeah. you know, that can report on some important events, you know. <laughs> That'd be neat. Okay, folks. We are wrapping it up for today. Sean, are you gonna give the, the live viewers a little cat action if you can? I can do that, yeah. 
Excellent. Don't we don't need a live demonstration of manscaped razors on the cat. They don't need a shave. It's not cat. They're girls anyway. Oh yeah, that's true. They're (laughs) they are girls. (laughs) Yeah, that was a a surprise we went through, but. So thanks everyone who came and watched live today. Thanks as well if you're catching the edited podcast version that comes out usually about 24 hours later. Thanks to all of you who hang out with us on Discord. Some of the comments came from there today. Ditto those of you on Patreon. You are keeping us all going here. We also appreciate Nina's input. Her notes were very valuable today as they so often are. Thanks to Joey and Jesse and Kevin for the music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps and our video intro. Thanks, Benjineer, for your assistance with sound quality. I would like to recommend today that um, y'all check out Michael Klarfeld's map of the Reach Ooh. today, which has a bunch of art of Garth Greenhand's children from the Age of Heroes. I think next week we'll probably put some art in the episode. But ahead of that, you can look at that and see some familiar faces. That's right. And it looks like Here Be Dragons is working on, is that Star Wars Rebels? Right on. Star Wars Rebels season one. Lots of uh, Star Wars action right now, what with uh, Boba Fett in season as we speak. So it's a, a lot of people are going oh, back to look kidding. at some of that old content because it's, uh, it's it's all connected. Oh, she's so chill. I can't believe it, Sean. I don't know if Sean's muted, I think, still. I don't think we can hear him, but we can see the cat, and that's what's okay. important. Oh, now we can hear him. Yeah. Wow, she's so she's relaxed. stern a little bit, but yeah, she was surprisingly okay with being picked up upside down. Oh. <laughs> but look how big she's gotten. She has. She's the biggest one. She's like <laughs> 10 pounds. Oh. Ooh, okay, you're getting squirmy. You're getting squirmy. She's so cute. Yeah, so big. Okay, go ahead. It is the age of cats in Sean's household, the household of the pink household. When we started today, before we just before we went live, I had Xerxes, our cat, in my lap, and I realized that Age of Heroes, if you take out the H and the O and replace them with X's, it's the age of Xerxes. <laughs> so keep that wow. in mind. Jot that mind down. Blown. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Friends and fellow Westorians and fellow members of this great fandom. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We had a lot of fun going a bit outside the lines today with some different styles of myths, ones that I hope you found the comparisons relevant and interesting. We'll be back with more Age of Heroes talk next week. A little bit of different figures, a little more of the named ideas and anything you can think of that if you think we missed or you want to see us talk about during the Age of Heroes, certainly let us know. Either way, until next time, Valar, Valar re-escape us. <laughs> Valar re-read us. <laughs> <laughs>